long ago in a galaxy far, far away. There exists a state of cosmic civil war. A brave alliance of underground freedom fighters has challenged the tyranny and oppression of the awesome Galactic Empire. This is their story. Stan Lee presents Star Wars, the greatest space fantasy of all. And welcome to Star Wars Monthly Monday, number 44. I am Chris Honeywell, and I'm here with my best Star Wars freak friend, Scott Gardner. Hey, how's it going? And we're back on format after a whole month of, <laughs> well, what was it, a month of Star Wars? Star Wars. Uh, you know, with us gloating about Star Wars Celebration. And it's going to it's gonna bleed a lot, like into this a lot, because like the two comics we go over go over today uh i actually read those on the bus on my way to star wars <laughs> celebration and scrawled my notes so when when i do my synopsis it might be a little garbled because the notes were scrawled on a bus <laughs> in my notebook so uh on the back of a seat <laughs> yeah <laughs> just like my, my t-shirt that said chris honeywell number one written in <laughs> magic marker <laughs> Well, speaking of uh, Star Wars Celebration, I just want to say hi to uh, any and all new listeners that we might have garnered, uh, thanks to our uh, showing up there at Star Wars Celebration. Hello, welcome to the show. We're back on format, so uh, hopefully this will give you a, a taste of what the show is, is more like on a regular monthly basis, as opposed to some of the yes. just gigundous friggin' episodes that we yeah, put out last month. This show will not be five and a half hours long, and it will not feature any bodily functions by any of the two true freaks. At least that we know of at this point. At least that are planned. Oh, you never point. know. I'm always you never know, but it won't always be always yeah. percolating. <laughs> Before I forget, one last bit of uh, of Star Wars celebration business. I wanted to make sure to uh, to give uh, special thanks. To uh, Nick Martorelli, who uh, had a last-minute donation that we received, which basically was the lifesaver for us, because it came in pretty much at the tail end of of Celebration for us. So it was like that that last-minute, extra-needed little bit of cash when you're, like, broke and going, oh, my God, how can I... You know, in my case, it was like, oh, my God, how can I go home and face the wife with not a dollar <laughs> left in my pocket where it was you was like you know oh my god how am i gonna like pay bus fare to get back or you know cab fare to get back That's, to the house type that, of that thing, literally so. that 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 money literally paid my cab fare from the bus station because <laughs> for some reason i thought i was getting back to rochester at like seven in the evening and as i was riding the bus back i was doing the math in my head going this isn't working out to getting home at seven in the evening. And if it does, this was in the beginning of the bus trip. If it does, that means this bus trip is like significantly shorter, like impossibly shorter. 
So then I look at my ticket and it's like, oh yes, okay, I'm getting into town at 1:43 a.m. There will not be any buses because <laughs> otherwise I could take a bus right to you know right to like a half a block from my door. So I was just like, ah, starting to think who could I call, and I'm like, ah, two in the morning, I don't know. And then it was just <laughs> like, cap it, perfect timing. It was just like, got got me home and into the front door. I literally, I think I had. Beside the money for that cab, I think I had like a pocket full of change. <laughs> so thank you, Nick. It was that was a very very generous donation, and we uh, we sincerely appreciate it very very much. And you know, I got to thinking. I think you know, other than when we got together with uh, with Scott Rifen, uh to record, uh, you know, some of the the post panel. Uh, wrap up that we did there um, for the what was that the third week episode second or third week episode I forget now um, this was like the the only time that we've you know the first time that we've really spoken since uh, you know celebration and getting back home and everything I I got like just deathly sick right after I got home from the I knew something was was up that last couple of days. That we were all together. I just wasn't feeling up to snuff. And I, I kept chalking it up to, you know, we weren't sleeping very good. I definitely was not eating right, you know, through the whole thing. And we were just, like, living hard and fast through that whole thing. So I just kind of kept yeah, chalking it up to very that. poorly, too. Yeah. But, I mean, that, that last couple of days, I just kept, I got to thinking, man, you watch. I'm going to end up so sick just from lack of sleep and, and running full tilt the whole time. And sure enough, I wound up flat on my ass for like well, a week. It was awful. On top of that, we were at Disney World at a crowded convention and riding buses and boats where you're crammed in with other people. Mm-hmm. So it's just, you're just, yeah, you're just in a hole. And I mean, Disney World and Star Wars Celebration had people from around the world. So it was just like a breeding ground for, you know, colds, colds from around the world right right so we, and and both of those also have a large percentage of kids which everybody knows are you know like traveling germ bags that you could <laughs> just, just like squeeze into the atmosphere <laughs> so yeah it's lucky that we all didn't get the bubonic plague by the time we got home especially with our diet of like you know, Popeye's <laughs> chicken and, you know. See, now I want all the Disney spiels to get pizza. changed, the little Q spiels to get changed from, you know, please watch your children to please watch your traveling germ bags. Please keep <laughs> them away from other people. Traveling <laughs> germ bags of mostly water. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Ah, so what else have we got for, for pre... I know one thing I got real quick. Um... I went in, I had just a little bit of time left right before we hit the record button on this one. So I went in and I was uh, I was going to pull up the Gmail and have it sitting open here in front of me so that we could uh, address all of our uh, Star Wars related Two True Freaks email feedback. And you know what? There it wasn't a any. single one. <laughs> I was like, are you kidding me? So I'm uh, I'm actually kind of crushed by that. I'm 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 saddened and disappointed. So uh, write in, folks. I, as I stated before, I don't know what episode it was, but I stated this a, a while ago, probably a couple months ago. Um, I, I'm serious. I have a I have a new devotion to uh, to do an email and covering email. So uh, I know that we were horribly slack about it for pretty much our entire four year run so far, but. Uh, if you write into the show, we're going to make every effort to uh, to get to those emails and, and cover them. 
Um, the only thing I ask is in your in your address line, you know, your subject header line. Uh, let us know which show you're writing into because it, that'll help with actually making sure that we cover. I think that's honestly one of the biggest reasons we just never really covered it before because we kept getting these all-encompassing emails that would basically review a whole bunch of shows at once. And it's like, where where do you cover that at? Because somebody tuning in just to listen to Star Trek Monthly Monday you know, is not probably more well, we, than likely not going to want to sit through email feedback about you know. Well, we need we need an intern who sifts through all that and then <laughs> takes the letters and breaks them all up and all you know takes takes a paragraph from each letters that we can quote you know in each separate show. Right. And all no, that's that. not a bad idea. I tried to do that once and it just it became just a mountain of work. Well, that's that. why we need an unpaid. Uh, did I say unpaid intern? <laughs> we need an unpaid intern to unpaid, do something yeah, like that. Yes. Definitely. We need a, a a paying intern, one that pays us to do it. That's what we need. <laughs> See how I up the stakes every time? Just a little, you notch it up just a little time, hoping to get the better deal. We do have some truly devoted people out there. So maybe we need a voluptuous, are... beautiful, young female. <laughs> Big-breasted, bare-breasted, yeah, there that, you go. That, <laughs> that, that does our intern work and pays us for it. Uh, preferably from a Scandinavian country. <laughs> well, I only have one thing left on my list, and uh, it's going to be a, a rather lengthy thing. So, what have you got? You want me to go first? Yeah, I've I've been doing some garage sailing and coming up with uh, a whole bunch of uh, little little Star Wars things. Now, what are those little goofy like caricature? Um, they usually don't have any articulation. They're like little cartoon version, little kid versions of the um, Star Wars figures. You know what I'm talking about? They usually have big feet and big oh, hands. Oh yeah. Um. Oh god. What are they called? Yeah, I know what you're talking about. They're like little like play school type of things for like yeah. the, like the really young. Yeah. They have a specific name. I can't think of what they're called. They're like Star Heroes or Star Star Galactic Heroes. I think Galactic that's it. Heroes. Galactic I Heroes. Think that's I think that's, that's it. Yeah. And I got a I got a um, Obi Wan of those, and then I've got a whole bunch of stormtroopers and uh, clone troopers, just sort of hanging out. Um, I went to this one garage sale, and it was all Star Wars and Star Trek. I just had a huge pile of Star Wars, mostly Star Wars, but there are a few star nice Star Trek items. Some some books and stuff. I but wish you would get with the twenty first episode, twenty first century, and uh, and get yourself a phone where you could like take pictures of that stuff and send it to me. Like when you're at these things, and you know, be like, "Hey, dude, is this anything that interests you?" Because I always hear about these things later, and I have uh, these, the, these horrible have to, visions have of have all the stuff like, you've left set there. We would have you know? to. Uh, we would have to be like. We would have to be like like set our watches together because you know the average time I'm in a garage sale. I mean, you, we would have to be instantaneously communicating. Although that maybe maybe we could try to arrange that for next spring. We could do some sort of you know spy show where you you know you're live on. You you know you what what you would do is you would be somewhere with a computer looking stuff up on eBay, while we uh, phone at India from the garage sale and, and pictures. Right. Uh, I got a little clone trooper figure. He's he's metal. He's cast. Cast iron, or is it cast iron? Or um, 
he's a nice cast metal clone trooper. He's all articulated and he's yeah, on like a stand. Die cast type of thing. Die cast, yes. And um, you know, he's got a little. Um, he's in a little display case, and he's missing his gun. But the way his arms are in there, he totally looks like air guitar clone trooper. <laughs> So, you know, obviously he's supposed to have a nice gun, you know, slung over his shoulder, but... Maybe you could I mean, mod him into the Kiss Trooper. Yeah, you probably could. It's the same kind of trooper. Um, I got a bunch of these little... I guess they're, like, for, like, kids' backpacks, like, in elementary school or something, where they're, um... Yeah, they have a little a little clip, like you would see those, like, camping clips, you know what I mean? Um, carbine type of thing yeah carbiner whatever the hell they're called yeah but they're made out of plastic and they're just like a little r2 a little yoda and a little anakin that open up into a little compartment you know that you could carry something in and you would i think you i think basically you collect them and hang them off your backpack that's Uh, got a bunch of those i got a bunch of um i'm assuming they're probably mcdonald's um happy meal there's some sort of, you know, premium from either McDonald's or, or Burger King. But uh, it's a whole bunch of bobbleheads. And there's like a Luke Skywalker bobblehead. Oh, yeah. He's in a, a X-Wing. There's a, the, my favorite is a General Grievous one. Is <laughs> really neat. But there's a, a Ewok one where he's in an AT-AT. And, huh. uh, or no, actually he's in the um, speeder bike. It's a Stormtrooper. And... Um, and Chewy that are on Adat. The the stormtroopers in a full Adat and the and Chewy's at the ATST, the two legged one. Oh cool. And an Anakin and um or no, actually it's a it's a Han Solo on the in the Falcon and an R two and a Jedi Starfighter. But I, think uh, I had one of those and I thought I thought it was really creepy so I didn't get any more of them. And I, I got a couple of those ATSTs that are they're 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 sort of the individual walker ones. They're sort of like a motorcycle. You know, you would just have a trooper seated on them. I don't know what those are called. Oh yeah, I know what you. Yeah, I'm not sure what they're called either. I know what you're talking about though. But I got a couple of couple of them too. Let me know what you want for those. Okay, I haven't even I haven't even looked. At, I don't know. They're in my Star Wars collection. Because when it comes to like the 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 stuff for the actual action figures, Logan's still into a lot of that stuff. So oh, I'm okay. Interesting. Yeah, it's it, that's it's totally in scale for for action figures. So, okay, yeah, I got a couple of those. But um, yeah, that's that's about it. Um, Do you ever see any trading cards? And I'm not talking like the old Tops cards, but I was thinking the other day. I know there have been a good number of sets, and these are, these would be within recent years. I would say oh, within like the last, like sets. say, fifteen twenty years, where it was like artwork, like you know, they it was like commissioned artwork, just especially for card sets and stuff. I'd like to actually start collecting that stuff. Oh my God! Well, that's there's a lot of that stuff. It seems like yeah, because I know that some of the really nice pictures that I see just browsing Star Wars images on you know on Google or something. A lot of those pictures actually come from or commissioned artwork. for cards. Yeah, commissioned for cards. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I'd like to, you know, cuz I, I stopped collecting Star Wars cards a long long time ago, you know. I usually like 
it, and I actually have stopped doing it in recent years, but I used to buy a few packs of every different kind of Star Wars cards that came out just so I would have, like, here's an example of this kind, you know, because the thing about it is they got so expensive. That's the thing, yeah, exactly. In recent years. The only ones that I used to buy, like, I would buy one pack every time I went to the store because it was so cool with a... Um, they're not anaglyph, they're... Um, um, what's that process with the plastic for the three D for the sort of movement? Right, yeah, uh, oh lenticular. God. Lenticular, yeah, it, that's it, it. it. They would do the lenticular ones, and I love those. Yeah. They did some for all all the movies, and I would buy a pack of. Them. I didn't get complete sets of those, but usually I'd only buy one or two packs. So I've got a whole bunch of. I, I'll dig through my Star Wars cards and and get like the names of some of the runs of of those artwork ones, and there was a neat run. They did of Star Wars cards in the last few years, and you know I'm getting old, so it could have been within five years, it could have been within two years, I don't remember, but they they were like vintage Star Wars cards, but you'd get a pack and you'd have like maybe an Empire Strikes Back card in there, and and they weren't exact reprints, but they were pretty close to exact replicas. Hmm. Or, or the style of them, or you would have like a yellow series card, and then you would have a piece of artwork card, and, and like an episode one card, and then a classic looking blue series card. So it's really neat. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think the very last set I ever bought, or, you know, just like a pack of them, was when one of the widescreen series came out, and I think it was Empire. Because those were really neat. Because those were actually yes. taken from frames of the film. Yes. So you would get shots in there that you didn't get in the old sets back when we were kids. Because none of those shots had the actual optical effects in them. And they right, and they wouldn't have the um, the aspect ratio of the wide screen right. either. So you would always have little edges cut out if it was a familiar yeah picture. They Another were nice, but they I want to say even back then, and this had to be expensive. 15 years ago or so, I mean, they were like two bucks a pack for yeah, like they eight cards. I'm like, yeah, to hell with that. I've got I've got a few of those yeah, examples of those. But um, the neat thing about those retro ones is when they did like episode one, two, and three, they did them in the style of the old, uh, you know, Topps trading cards. Right. So they were that, so they were like that dull, card, dull cardboard on the back, you know, and... And not as shiny on the front, you know. They looked like an old card, and they had the, and they had the cheesy titles to them and everything. It was it was really neat. Yeah, I like that stuff. Because I did an eBay search the other day, you know, just Star Wars cards, and of course it came up with twenty bazillion listings, none of which was what I thought I was looking for. You know what I mean? But there were. So many sets, I didn't even have a clue existed, you know what I mean? So mm -hmm. I I wouldn't know where to begin, but it'd be one of those type of things like you were talking about. You know, you go to a, a garage sale and somebody's just got like a shoebox full of, you know, cards and they want to get rid of it for, you know, five bucks or something, you know, pick it up. and Yeah, that's, that's what I like to do. I like to get like that and then just throw them and one day, you know, I'll go through all of them and I'll sort them all out into their sets and see what I got. And then you just keep adding more, and then someday maybe you'll get them all. Maybe it's right. the chase. Oh, I know. I just remembered the, the uh, there was nagging at the back of my head one of the um, 
the other thing I got for a dollar was a uh, I think it's um, eighty three uh, Y wing fighter. Oh wow! It's beat up. It's missing its you know it's missing its cockpit. Um, you know windscreen or space screen or whatever. It's, it's <laughs> a Y wing or a B wing. It's a Y wing. Oh wow! And uh, and I thought I, I it was in such like good shape i mean it's missing a few of the parts from from it but it's very clean and the stickers are like brand new on it look brand new on it but uh so i thought it was one of the like 90s 2000 right. you know reissues that they made of it and and it would have made sense from the other stuff that i was getting at that one garage sale because of the age of the kids you know but you know i got it home and i looked at it sure enough 1983 I don't think Weird. that ever came out in our area when we were kids because I remember when the when the one came out from whoever the the company was that had the the license when it was like Power of the Force and all that in the 90s and they came out with the Y-wing and I wanted one and I kept missing out on on getting one I remember when eBay started up going on there to look and then all of a sudden I was seeing all these vintage era y-wings and that's when i learned that there had actually been one back when we were kids i just had never seen it anywhere and didn't even know that they released one they're not that expensive um these days at least at least not when i when i looked it up well the one i looked up like i'd be lucky to get a couple dollars for it you know because of all the because it's you know missing a lot of its pieces. I haven't thrown batteries in it yet to see if it's if its lasers work and all that either. But um, you know, a, a one in good shape. You know, if it's in its box and stuff, then you're talking money. But you know, just one if you just want one that's in pretty decent shape. Eh, it's only going to cost you ten or fifteen bucks probably. I haven't been there in quite a while, but uh, we have a place not far from us called Flea World. That's uh, this just massive, massive flea market that's open on the weekends. Is that where we went? Did, is that no, where? I, I, I wish I thought of it when you were here. That would have been a cool place to go, especially what what day was it? We went with Sean and went to the comic shop and all that. Was that Sunday or mo- no? That was on a Monday, so they were closed. But uh, we could have gone there uh, on on Sunday possibly, but. Uh, I haven't been there in quite a while, but there used to be a guy there that ran a, a toy booth, and he had tons and tons of vintage Star Wars, and they were actually fairly inexpensive, because like you say, unless it was something with like all the pieces or still in the box or something, that stuff for some reason just really hasn't seemed to have held its value very well at all. You know, everybody That's wants the the... the you know, mint stuff or, you know, well-preserved with all the pieces, but, you know, just picking up, you know, some beat-up old X-Wing, you know, that may or may not have all the, you know, little guns and the cockpit and all, nobody really seems interested in that stuff. It's kind of strange. I don't mind. (laughs) See, I've kind of considered trying to rebuild the collection I used to have, but... it would be kind of difficult because most of my stuff was like that, you know, where I I did keep, you know, all the pieces and all that sort of thing. So I don't know if it would be the same, but I have always regretted getting rid of all my Star Wars stuff. I really wish I hadn't because I kept it for so many years, you know, and I kept all the pieces. I mean, the day I got rid of the stuff, everything still had, you know, everything that it came with when I bought it. You know, I, I seldom lost anything. 
So, I mean, the guy got an absolute steal because, you know, I mean, yeah, like my death star those place times of financial need, man. Yeah. <laughs> we all know about that. I mean, that's every collector has those those holes in their collection where there was some dark financial time where it's like, well, and 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 a lot of times that's what your collection sort of is. It's kind of like a bank account, especially if you want to justify it to those around you who who love and right, you know, just barely are hanging on to respecting you. Right. <laughs> you well, know, that's it, how it, I justified it, my comic collection all these years. You know what these things are worth? Like I have any intention of ever getting rid of them, you know, but. That's how I'm allowed to, to hold when, to them. But the thing is, when you have to, you can. You can convert, you know, it's something that's convertible into into money. That's the, the usually with collection. Usually, yeah. You know? <laughs> it depends. But, you know, I mean, there's, I mean, I mean, my, my Marvel Star Wars comics that I have are my second go at, at those. All my original ones went, went during a tough spot in the 90s, you know. Mm-hmm. I remember bringing him into work and a guy answering the ad and coming in and, and, you know, and talking me down and talking me down and, like, you know, just being like, oh, and then they're gone. It's like, oh, I need that money. <laughs> mm-hmm. I know what you mean. Thankfully, I haven't really ever had to do much of that with my comics. But, uh, yeah, I've definitely had to do it with other things, you know, like Star Wars toys and that sort of thing. But you got anything else? No, I think that's about all I got. And now it's time to get up off your lazy ass and read a book with two true freaks. For the first time in quite a long time, and see, that's what I like about you know. Not only are we back on format, but uh, here we go with with something a segment that is uh, has not been around in a long time. But I'm hoping we'll we'll be a little more regular. But uh, I have a book review, something I haven't had on this show in quite a while. I uh, decided I, I need to try to get back to uh, my Star Wars uh, reading project of you know going through all the EU books in, in chronological order. I was just kind of itching to read some Star Wars. Now, I have to come clean that uh, I actually skipped a couple of books in my reading order. I'm trying to remember what the last book was that I read, and I'm... I'm struggling to remember i think it might have been let me think oh i know what it was it was the uh it was the han solo the ac crispin han solo trilogy and then the uh i reread the lando calrissian trilogy well according to the source that i'm using for the chronology you know the proper chronology on these things the next books in the series should have been um force unleashed one and two and i'm currently working on force unleashed one but I gotta be honest with you, it reads like what it is. It's an adaptation of a video game, and damn, does it feel like it. Because back in the '90s, I was a huge, huge fan of uh, the video game Doom. And I don't know if you remember, but Doom actually had some novels that came out based on the video game. Oh, really? I bought the very first one, and it was the most boring friggin' read because basically it was like. And then, then we went, went into here. another room yeah, and, and shot we went people. Into, exactly. That's exactly what that book read like. That's kind of what Force Unleashed is reading like so far. It's like, okay, and then he walks into this room and he takes out this and he throws his lightsaber at that. And then he force chokes this guy. And I was like, all right, you know, if, if 
you know, if this is all you've got for me, then I'll just watch my kids play the game. You know what I mean? It, it's re- so far, it's just not doing it for me. But I'm only about a third of the way into it, so you know, if I do finish it, then uh, I'll come back with a more proper review on that. But anyway, I skipped over that because something that has been sitting on my bookshelf calling to me for quite some time uh, finally won, and I, I decided to, to skip ahead, pick it off the shelf, give it a read, because I've been anxious to read this book ever since I picked it up. And uh, this is Star Wars Death Star by uh, Michael Reeves and Steve Perry. Now, uh, I really like Michael Reeves. He's uh, probably the the author that I've given the best reviews to so far as far as his, uh, his Star Wars books. You know, he wrote uh, Darth Maul Shadow Hunter, which I really, really liked. He wrote the MedStar books. He wrote the uh, the Coruscant Knights. Uh, so far, it's just a trilogy, although I've heard rumors that there's another book that's going to be coming out pretty soon. I have really, really enjoyed his books. And uh, Steve Perry, he wrote um, Shadows of the Empire, which uh, I really like that, too. I think he's written another Star Wars book. Let me see if it says here in the front. I'm trying to remember what other Star Wars book he might have written. Um Not seeing it listed here, but I thought that there was another one that he had done besides um, Shadows of the Empire. But anyway, this is the both of them working together in tandem on this. And like I say, I was just I was really excited right from when I got this book to read it. And uh, it's neat because this is not at all what the book that I expected. But in a mostly really good way. I, you know, I'm, I'm glad that they surprised me by it not being what I expected that it would be. You know, it is, of course, you know, it's the story of the Death Star. And, you know, it's kind of like, well, duh, you know, what did you, <laughs> what did you expect the book would be? But I expected it to be more like the, the, the whole life story of the Death Star. For one thing, um, you know, what took them so long to construct the Death Star? But it's really, it's only the last few months, maybe a year. It was kind of hard to get a, a, a feel for the time frame that's being discussed here. How much time are we talking about? But it's definitely, you know, the last few months of the construction. And the book goes right up, you know, through the last little bit of construction, right until the station is actually completed, right up to, and this is a big spoiler, so if you don't want to know, skip ahead a couple of seconds, up to the destruction of the Death Star, which was something I wasn't really sure that the book was going to do. I didn't realize it was going to go basically through the the entire life of the Death Star, so I thought that was kind of neat. But like I say, what I really expected was that this would be basically a novel-length explanation of just what the hell took them 19 years to complete this thing. And that's addressed almost immediately right in the very beginning of the book and it was really weird because it's pretty much the reasons i expected which was you know bureaucracy you know they had to get the proper funding there were you know all these you know basically they were still consolidating you know the emperor was still consolidating his power base so there were you know little fires to put out you know the remnants of the clone wars type of thing um they actually had to deal with sabotage and the beginnings of the rebel you know rebel activity and the rebel alliance that sort of thing but it's really mentions 
um, not so much offhanded, but just it's very brief. I, I, I'm, I'm, th- I'm thinking it's a paragraph or two that gives you that explanation, whereas I thought that would be the book itself. I thought the whole book would be that. So it's addressed, but it's like, okay, we, we've got that out of the way. Now we can do the book that we want to do. So, uh, you know, I'm glad that that wasn't the, you know, the entire focus of the book. You know, I was actually pleasantly surprised by that. But I was, you know, still I was a little bit disappointed um, to find out that there wasn't more to the story than that. You know, that it was basically what I thought the reasons would be. I'm always a little bit disappointed when the author isn't any more inventive than I myself am. I always want the I want the author to be smarter than me. You know what I mean? I want them to be more creative and more inventive than I am and, and come up with ideas that I hadn't anticipated. And as far as that portion of the story, the the author doesn't do that. Um, Jeez, and that's not that hard of work. <laughs> well, you know, that's... But that's um, you know, that's... Ultimately, that was always my great, you know reason why i didn't think more highly of the of the timothy zahn books because he went in the same direction that you and i had gone in when we were kids which was battling the remnants of the empire as the empire tries to reconsolidate you know its forces and stuff and that to me is just boring i I, i've never found that to be a particularly interesting story it's been done um but anyway the best way that i can summarize this book is have you ever seen that picture that's been going all around the internet and Facebook and stuff of the very dejected stormtrooper? And he's saying to himself, I had friends, I had friends. on that Death Star. <laughs> uh-huh. That's the best way that I can sum up this book. <laughs> because that's how you come to feel about get, the characters involved. There's well, familiar I, characters. Familiar yeah. characters, exactly. Um, and it's it's neat because it introduces real and for the most part, really likable characters, which uh, you know, I always find that refreshing, of course. But it's it's also it's really weird because these are supposed to be the bad guys. You know what I mean? You're not supposed to sympathize with these people. You know, when you watch Star Wars or when we watched it as kids, you know, and the and the Death Star gets blown up. I That's, mean, I can yeah. You're like, hey, it was a room full of assholes. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And uh, you know, to a certain degree. I can't help but feel that you know that the, the there's portions of this book where the authors, whether intentionally or not, were almost calling back to the whole segment in Clerks, you know, where they're discussing, you know, that that you know, right the second right. death star. You know, there, anyway. there were lots of there are lots of workers there who were just like scab laborers and right, contractors you know, and exactly. Stuff. And this book basically confirms that there are quote-unquote innocence aboard the death star you know people that are there to you know run the local restaurants or you know install the toilets or whatever you know that not everybody there was you know an evil goose-stepping nazi well well, i was just gonna say it's like nazi germany that the the entire population of germany were goose you know a lot of uh, I mean, I I would imagine a good percentage of the people were not big fans of Hitler, but they just couldn't say anything and right. got to feed their family and all that. So you just sort of go along with it. Or 
you know, or there's, I mean, the whole thing, there's people who, like, if you don't see a battle on your planet, then it's all politics to you. The Empire and the Rebellion and all that, it's whatever, right. it's it's just politics, so it's like, whatever, whatever, we're, somebody's hiring me, you know, <laughs> to do right. a job, so I'll go do it, you know, right. and they're not even thinking about that, so yeah. So a good number of the characters in this book are kind of like that. They're they're not necessarily Imperials. So it's a little bit easier to sympathize with them. But again, and I don't want to spoil too much, some of the characters are Imperials. And those are the ones that were really interesting for me because it definitely adds to this really weird thing that has been happening to me. And I, I think you mentioned that this has been happening to you too, is that ever since the prequel trilogy... I'm seeing Darth Vader and the Stormtroopers in a much different light. Right. You know, because when we were kids, they were black and white villains. You know, you you had your black and white, you had your heroes, you had your villains, and that was it. You know, and and we didn't get shades of gray, or we didn't, um, you know, we didn't get Vader's backstory. He was just, he was the evil guy. He was the bad guy, and, and you didn't need more than that. But now that we've had that backstory, it totally paints that character in a different light and i've found vader to be almost a sympathetic character to a degree and this book kind of adds to that element with the stormtroopers because you know through like the clone trooper books we got to know the clone troopers and you know they eventually of course become the stormtroopers and you got to care about them as individual human beings and, you know, they all had their, their own stories and their own motivations and things like that. So you get a little bit more in this, and you become invested in these people that you know where this story is going. You know that they're doomed to die. And so it, it adds a whole different spin and a whole different element to a story that you thought you knew. And that's really cool. And something, again, I didn't anticipate this happening, was that the book does go right into uh, territory that we're familiar with. We do witness um, Vader and his troops go and capture the Tantive Four. You know, we we go through uh, you know Leia's interrogation aboard the Death Star, the destruction of Alderaan. It goes right up until the end of the first movie with the destruction of the Death Star. I didn't anticipate that with this book. I really didn't realize that it was going to go in that direction. I thought it would basically that this book would end when the station was operational and be a lead-in to the first movie. It actually overlaps with the first movie, and I found that to be really cool because you're getting the Death Star, you know, the Imperial side of the story from the Imperial's perspective, you know, why they were doing the things Does, that they were doing. And it's really interesting. So do you see it from their perspective as Luke and Ben and Han and Chewie are all running around inside? rescuing the princess and all that is that also mention of-, of them we we don't really once it, you know once we get to the part of the story where um you know luke and han and everybody were aboard it's mentioned once or twice that you know there's activity in the cell block and stuff like that but the only real overlap with that part of the story is that we get vader's um fight with kenobi from vader's perspective and again uh, very very interesting it it really adds a lot of insight into dialogue and things like that it was a little bit jarring in places as you know because vader's um around in bits and pieces in the beginning of the book and he's very like episode three vader and then when you get into 
where Vader is in the first movie, some of the dialogue seems a little bit jarring because Vader in the first movie doesn't quite sync up with all of his other appearances, in my opinion. His dialogue is a little bit more Doctor Doom in the right, first movie. Right. You know what I mean? Yes. But uh, but it's interesting, and, and one of the things that I, I got the biggest kick out of, because, I, again, I think you and I have mentioned this before, was uh, you know now with the with the prequel trilogy behind us, um, I, I'm pretty sure it was you and I that were talking about this. You know why did Vader never look at Leia and go, hmm? You know she kind of reminds me of somebody, and it's really neat because the authors thought of that. And there's a moment when he, when she first confronts you know when the stormtroopers first bring her before Vader right at the beginning of Star Wars. And she, you know, the whole, you know, Darth Vader, only you could be so bold, that whole moment, he actually does start to think how much she reminds him of Padme. And then he has to, like, quash down. Crush, crush it down. Yeah. yeah. He's not allowing himself anymore to have a connection with Anakin Skywalker. In his own mind, he's had 19 years to basically distance and and person yeah exactly create a whole different personality in his own mind he does believe what kenobi told luke which was vader you know betrayed and murdered anakin skywalker and that's exactly how vader's been living his life and coming to terms with the things that have happened to him and the things that he has done so there is just that brief little moment when he starts to think how very much like Padme she is, and then he instantly like, no, I, I can't let my mind go in that direction, and then he snaps into like evil mode, which is why he kind of snaps at her and is very disappointed. Why he's kind of angry. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it, it, I thought that was brilliant. I thought that was a really good explanation why he acts, you know, out of character, if you know what I mean. You know, even though yeah, this- he acts like he just came out of a bit, like he just got in a big fight with his, like someone who's just gotten a big fight with their wife, right? But, then, the, the, but you didn't see it, and then they show up and they're trying, you know, they're trying to do their job or do whatever they're supposed to do, but they're like agitated and you know wound up or something. That's what it, that's what it reminded me of. He's just like tear the ship apart, you know. He's angry, and it's like, hey, you got the ship, man. <laughs> you you captured him. You should be a little, you know, and. And after Star Wars, he's more threatening, you know. Right. He doesn't yap at people. He just sort of, you know, he just sort of says, hey, you know, you might want to do what what I want you to do or else right. I'll choke you to death. <laughs> well, this book, I, I thought, really played with that dynamic really nicely, you know, of, of, of shading in backstory and adding a new spin to, you know, scenes we had seen before, things like that. Um, although, and I don't want this to sound like a harsh criticism, but it was something I couldn't help but notice. There seems to be an awful lot of folks of good conscience aboard what is the ultimate weapon. And that I found a little bit disconcerting, almost like it didn't quite sync up with... I can see that. Because there, there's a one of the big plot elements, one of the big plot points in the book is after the destruction of Alderaan, it it basically creates a schism in the ranks. You know, there are people that are, like, totally with the Empire and and believe in what they're doing and everything, and then there's a portion of people that are like, 
we've gone too far with this thing. You know, we, we blew up a planet full of billions of innocent people. And I can't live with that. I can't, I can't be behind this anymore. You know what I mean? I, I can't get down with that program kind of thing. That seems realistic to me. I thought know. it seemed realistic, but at the same rate, I guess it's, it, it's, it's one of those things you didn't see it on the screen. So it's, it's one of those things. Can I really believe that this was happening behind the scenes kind of thing? Um, but again, I don't want to spoil where that goes, but that's definitely an, an element in, in the book that I've, I've found both really refreshing but also a little bit off-putting at the same time because it was like, okay, how realistic is that really based on well, you what know, we've I, seen in the movies? I imagine the Empire, you don't get to see much of you know media in Star Wars. Right. I'm, sure the, I'm sure the Empire, like Nazi Germany, has you know their propaganda arm. Oh, I'm going to get back like, to that. Believe me, that was actually... They were like, you know, Alderaan was just on the verge of attack when we got him, you know. <laughs> we got him. That's definitely something I, I want to bring up here in just a moment. Um, but speaking of the ultimate weapon, what I probably liked the absolute best about this book was uh, it made me think, really stop and think, I, I, I believe for the very first time, about what a, a really cool an original and damn scary concept the death star really is because you know when we were kids again you know we were 9 when we saw this movie you know when we saw the first movie it was just one of the it, it was another element of an already fantastic mind-blowing movie with all kinds of elements you'd never seen before you know from lightsabers to ships that whipped around and and flew like you know like pl- airplanes Yep. We'd never seen anything like this before. The Death Star was simply just another facet of that. And I've always liked, you know, there, there's that famous interview that, that George Lucas had given at one time, you know, when he was really you know high off his success from, from Star Wars, and maybe even Empire was out by that time, I'm not sure. But he was basically giving his, his interpretation, his reason why other science fiction movies generally fail which was that they spend too much time living in their own world and, and trying to impress you with all these impressive special effects in the world that they've built and showing you too much, whereas his movies just move, move, move. You know, everybody, you know, nobody's awed in Star Wars by the world that they live in because they live there every day. Right, Once right. Again, that's normal life, whereas other science fiction movies generally spend a lot of time with everybody being wowed by you know, this awesome new thing around them. And so because of that, I don't feel like we ever really got time in Star Wars to stop a moment and go, whoa, check out this Death Star thing. That's pretty. That's a pretty cool idea. At least I know that I've never really stopped to think about it before until this book because it makes you stop and consider the, the you know, all right, well, how does this work exactly? How do you generate that kind of power that, you you know, basically with one blaster shot, you blow up a planet? It, it actually spends time going over that. How does that, but not in a boring, like, you know, super science way, but more of a just, you know, here's the practicality of it. Here's the, the technical challenge that we had to, to solve in order to make this work. That I found that to be really interesting. But also there's the moral question, you know, now that we have the ability, do we use it and how do we use it? And I liked that element to it, too. So it really made you examine this idea in a a whole new and fresh way. I found that to be really, really interesting. 
Um, but on the flip side, I did have a couple criticisms. Probably my biggest one, and this is going to seem super nerdy, I'm sure. But I thought they really missed a great opportunity here, character-wise. You know, of course, Grand Moff Tarkin is one of the big characters in the book. You know, he was the commander of the Death Star. So, of course, he gets a big part of the book. I felt like, even though he's in a lot of the book, and we were privy to a lot of his, um, you know, innermost thoughts and feelings and what's going on in his head and his secret plans and things like that, even with all the time that's spent on him, I never really felt like, we got to know him that we really learned anything new or, or really got in his head or, or really that it didn't really add anything to him. And I thought that was a real shame. And I thought they missed a perfect opportunity to add even more to Tarkin's scumbag factor by, they never once mentioned lady Tarkin. Now I know that she is a super obscure character that, to my recollection, I think she only ever had one, like, quote-unquote, real appearance ever, which was in the uh, the Russ Manning newspaper strip. Do you remember the story where Leia, something happened, she was on some mission, and she, like, crash lands or something, and she lands on the planet that Tarkin comes from, and she ends up having to disguise herself as, like, a servant girl or something, and she oh, I do up, vaguely remember that. She ends up working for Tarkin's wife, who, like, she hates the Empire because the Empire, or I mean, not the Empire, but rather the Rebellion, rebellion. hates the Rebellion because they killed her husband on the Death Star and all this. And I remember having this big plot about something about mining some element for ammunition or something, and Darth Vader was involved. And I mean, I remember it being a pretty good book, or a pretty good story, rather. What was funny is that she always reminded me of, um, oh, what's the actress there? You know, Maud. Um, oh, B. Arthur. B. Arthur. She looked just like B. Arthur, and I could actually see B. Arthur playing that role of of Lady Tarkin. Well, a big. Uh, oh, jeez! No wonder he was such a miserable. <laughs> oh yeah, and that's just yeah. she's trade too. Is like she's just this like ball busting bitch, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, <laughs> Arnold, get over here. <laughs> But, you know, what are you thinking? A big element in this book was that um, Tarkin is having an affair and a very creepy affair, too, because, you know, the the woman is much, much, much younger than him. She was basically like this cadet that he took under his wing and like personally groomed and stuff to be, you know, this now she's an admiral. And I thought, you know, they spend so much time in the book, you know, concentrating on their relationship and this whole, you know, affair that's going on and everything. They never once mention the fact, well, for one, of course, they don't mention Lady Tarkin, but they never even mention the fact that he's married. And I just thought, you know, you you missed an opportunity to to add to his just, you know, what a dirtbag factor, you know? Yeah, yeah. and my other, you know, the, the second part of that criticism was that character herself. It's uh, it's Admiral Dalla. She just kind of pops up in this story with very little fanfare and really no introduction at all. Now, I know from having done a minimal amount of research on this, because, see, I'm trying not to spoil ahead for myself about things that are coming later in my read, but I knew that she had appeared somewhere else before. 
and uh, I I believe it's in the uh, Kevin J. Anderson the the Jedi what is it Jedi Academy books I think it's what they're called I think she's in those books so I knew that she had appeared somewhere else before you know if you go by publishing order but reading these books the way I am and I'm reading them in chronological order this character just kind of pops up out of nowhere and I found that to be kind of jarring and disconcerting and. Uh, you know, I, I don't think I don't think it's a good idea for writers to just assume that every fan knows every facet of whatever you know the the universe is or whatever. I, I think that DC and Marvel are, you know have gotten themselves into the shape that they're in in recent years by doing just that very thing. Right. But assuming that if you're reading you know, anything to do with their universe, then you know everything about their universe, and that's simply not the case. As huge of a Star Wars fan as I am, this whole EU thing is still, I mean, I have huge blind spots there. So I would love to have known, who the hell is this character, and what's what's her deal? And we don't really get that. She just kind of shows up, and she's she's Tarkin's girlfriend, and it's like, all right, how does that work? You know, and and we really don't get that. It's not a harsh criticism, but it was something that kind of took me out of it a little bit, if you know what I mean. Um, I also I would have liked a little bit more exploration of the relationship between Tarkin and Vader because Tarkin to me always seemed like he was kind of bossing Vader around in Star Wars, and he definitely feels that way in the book too. That they they're ver- like referring to Vader as his lapdog, right. you know, type of person his attack dog i always took that to be kind of a callback to the old uh you know the old frankenstein um movies that uh that peter cushing was in you know where where he was basically dr frankenstein and vader was his monster you know so so yeah very much like you said you know you have tarkin and then vader's his lackey kind of thing we know now that that's not really the case so what what is the dynamic between them? How how is Tarkin allowed so much leeway to talk to Vader the way he does when other people get choked to death for it? And sadly, I, I felt like the book kind of dropped the ball on that too. We never really get. And find that out in the Clone Wars cartoons. Oh, is it in there? Remember, remember they had Tarkin in that one episode, and Anakin was really taking a liking to him. Right, right. So. Yeah, he was probably just like, I like this guy. I won't kill him yet. Well, you know that could work too because one of my one of my big notes was that uh, you know the the book definitely gave me the impression that Tarkin does know who Vader is as far as you know Vader used to be Anakin Skywalker. I, I think it pretty much cinched that for me, which I always kind of suspected anyway. You know, just based on the fact of you know they have their little conversation about Kenobi and stuff like that in the movie, so I always kind of felt like more than likely Tarkin knew him. But see, to me, it was deeper than that. I always had the impression that not only did Tarkin know where Vader came from and all, but maybe that he and and Vader had a a prior relationship or a prior friendship or something like that. I guess, again, that could go back to what you were talking about with the whole Clone Wars thing. You know, maybe uh, Tarkin had gained Vader's respect when Vader was still Anakin, and that carries over into his new persona, I guess. Could work. Um, probably uh, this was another big thing for me and this goes into what you were saying before about the whole media thing and Nazi Germany and all I don't know if you remember um, or if you ever listened to it but uh, back when uh, when I did the um, the book review for 
Revenge of the Sith, you know, for episode three, we had uh, Ken Morgan on the show. And we did, what, like an hour or two going over that book. And one of the few criticisms I had of that book, because I really, really enjoyed that book a lot, but one of the few criticisms I had about it was there was a whole chapter in there devoted to the legend of Anakin Skywalker and Obi-Wan Kenobi and how basically they had become folk heroes in the Star Wars galaxy, that everybody knew their names and watched their adventures on TV and... You know, they, they were they were modern-day folk hero celebrity kind of things. And I just had a lot of trouble reconciling that with the Star Wars that I knew from when I was a kid, you know, where, where Luke didn't even know who his father was. You know, that, that he had been told his father was a nobody. You know, he was a navigator on a spice freighter. If he was this legendary folk hero character, then how the hell did Luke never hear of him? You know, how did he not know anything about him? You would think that he's out in the sticks. He's a hick. Well, even then, I mean, if he's watching TV and he sees reruns of the old, you know, Adventures of Anakin Skywalker cartoon or something, you would think he'd go, hey, I wonder if that guy's my dad. He's got the same name. Here's the thing is I just don't think um, Jedis would be really into having people making uh, adventures of them you know, type of thing. They're almost a religious order, you know? Right. It's it's not the kind of thing, you know, making them into folk heroes. They probably don't want that. But see, the book... Jedi craves that not. But that book establishes that, though, is that, you know, because those two were basically the greatest heroes of the Clone Wars, that that's exactly what happened to them, that they got elevated to that status, whether they... No, I would imagine Obi-Wan would chafe against that. Anakin would probably eat... Anakin would be into it, yeah. Yeah. But what happened was, you know, right after, you know, Order 66 and the, and the decimation of the Jedi Order and basically the consolidation of, of the Emperor's power, just like Nazi Germany, what you were talking about, he immediately started clamping down on, you know, what was the media allowed to, to talk about and show and, you know, making certain files and, and things, you know, uh, secret and, and actually, you know, against the law to look up. Because there's an element of this book that talks about midichlorians. And it's actually illegal to search them out, basically, on the internet. You know, basically, to go on the internet and try to get more information about midichlorians is against the law. Get a knock on, it'll get a knock on your door. Yep. Yeah. And that happens, too. It's a really interesting part of the book. So I liked that explanation. It was one of those things where, you know, in hindsight, I was kind of like, well, duh, that makes sense. I wish I'd thought of that sooner. But, yeah, it does. It makes perfect sense that, you know, the emperor... You know, what, what is that famous saying? You know, the history is written by the victor, something to that effect... Right, he's, right. he's basically rewriting history, and so, you know, in his world, you know, the the Jedi are now going to be portrayed as you know they were evil. They tried to overthrow the government, you know, which is why they had to be annihilated. And so it's you know what you were talking about before propaganda. He's spinning his own propaganda, and we see here it is eighteen or nineteen years later, and there was a, a character in the book that basically. She has a reminiscence about how her father hated the Jedi, basically because he would just, you know, sit around and watch TV, and the the Jedi were slandered constantly on TV. So, you know, you, you after a while, you know, if something's repeated on the evening news yeah. enough, you you begin to believe it. You begin to you know repeat the same kind of thing. I, again, I thought that was a really interesting and and more or less uh, realistic uh, take. Um, let's see what else I've got here. Um, 
it didn't have that robot character, and I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but there's a robot character that had been in all of Reeves' uh, prior Star Wars novels up to this point. Um, that character wasn't in this book, uh, unfortunately. I was really looking forward to seeing him again, and I thought for sure he would be in here, but he wasn't. But there is a character um, from his MedStar books that uh, that pops up in this book, so I really liked that. But uh, I feel like I've gone on a little bit long for this one, so I'll just wrap it up by saying uh, I really enjoyed it. Um, I thought it was a... a a good solid star wars but more importantly it was a page turner i mean i couldn't put it down once i started it i was really digging it enough to where i blew through it pretty quickly um which so far has has happened very very seldom for me when it comes to star wars books more most of them have been more of a chore than anything else um but uh you know if you only ever read you know select few Star Wars novels, definitely check out the ones written by Michael Reeves, because they've all so far been really solid reads, and, and this one's uh, right up there with the other ones. Uh, I, I enjoyed it a lot. So that was uh, Star Wars Death Star by uh, Michael Reeves and Steve Perry. Check it out. It gets the Scott stamp of approval. What do you think? You want to take a break, or you want to go right into uh, whatever? I say we take a break and come back with our, uh, our two um, issues of I get a pee-pee. Excellent. (laughs) Don't take the recorder in there with you. (laughs) You can sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. Simply click the PayPal link on our website, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. That was tasty. All right, so you did number 90, you did 93, right? You did 93. I did 94 and 95. Oh, you son of a bitch. Are you serious? Yeah, I've, I've had a, I had 94 done since... All right, hang on. Before. I'm going to find the email that you just sent to me because I thought for sure that you said you were doing 94... And oh, 95. wait a minute. You're right. 94 and 95. <laughs> Shit! Yeah, 94 on the bus. That was the one assigned to me in the oh, over God a month damn ago. It. So I was supposed to do... You're supposed to do the kitty cats, man. Shit. I did, too. I totally wrote up the wrong one. All right. Well, you know what? I'll have to wing it off the off the top of my head. <laughs> yes. All right. You know what? This could be fun. This could actually be fun. So who's... So, all right. So you're doing... All right. Yeah, that makes sense. You do 94, and then it's back to me for Indiana Jones. Shit. I wish I'd realized that, because I actually went out of my way for the one for... Uh, 94. Oh, well. It's because we were supposed to do it, like, we were supposed to do it back, we were going to do it before Star Wars Celebration, and we never got around to recording it. And then we're like, ah, we'll just do it during Star Wars Celebration, and then that, you know, of course, that never worked out. Right. So, yeah. Oh, well. All right, well. Are we ready to get back into this, then? Sure. (laughs) 
Okay. <laughs> I might just go ahead and leave all that in, actually, just to <laughs> illustrate how stupid I can be sometimes. <laughs> oh, well. So, yeah, pile the proof up, man. <laughs> all right, so uh, this is Star Wars number 93. This is the March 1980, what does that say, 5? Got to be 85. Right? I, yep. Yeah, all right, March 1985 issue. Um, the cover on this one, oh, yikes. You know what? I, this is what I get for not being prepared with notes here. It's Cynthia Martin, of course, but who, I wonder who did the, you know what? Hang on, I'm going to look this up real quick. Yeah. I'm going to bet that it's Tom Palmer. I think so, too, but I just want to have my ducks in a row. You know what I'm saying? Yes. But it's it's the it's the way that the the handle on that blaster looks. Yeah, the way the 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 furry hand is clutched onto the blaster that looks very Tom Palmer, and not very Cynthia Martin. It just credits Cynthia Martin, strangely enough. But yeah, I think you're right. I think I detect some. Uh some Tom Palmer in there as well. But anyway, she's she's solely credited as far as uh, Mike's Amazing World goes. And I trust that site over uh, most of the other sites that, uh, well, all of the other sites, actually, that cover similar things. Anyway, the cover depicts uh, Luke Skywalker and Han Solo, and they're sitting with their uh, hands behind their backs. I, I imagine they're probably tied behind their backs. They both have very stern looks on their faces as they face uh, execution. You've got this giant, furry, clawed hand holding a uh, not really Star Wars-looking laser gun, I have to admit. I, it looks something out of, like, Buck Rogers or something. It says, "Yeah, for what you have done to my people, you must die. Die, die, die. <laughs> And uh, I think I've got notes about this cover in my uh, in my notes section, so uh, I'll save that for after. Um, okay, so script and plot by Joe Duffy, pencils by Sal Buscema. Now, is this the first about Sal Buscema we're seeing on Star Wars? I can't I, remember I if he did. So. I think so too. Uh, Tom Palmer on the inks. Rick Parker does the lettering. Petra Scotis on uh, coloring. That name sounds familiar, and I can't remember why. Uh, Anne Nascenti, editor. Jim Shooter is the editor-in-chief. And the title of this one is Cat's Paw. Now, for all of you uh, folks out there that don't mind your uh, streams crossing, you know, Cat's Paw is the name of one of the... Um, how should we put it delicately? Less than stellar episodes of the original Star Trek. And I have to say that I feel kind of the same way about this. <laughs> this is a less than stellar episode of, uh, of Marvel's Star Wars. Anyway, it starts out with these uh, Y-Wing fighters, and they're in hot pursuit of a, uh, of a X-Wing fighter being flown by uh, a kitty cat. Yeah. yeah so they... Uh, hmm? It's a kitty cat. It's a kitty cat. It's a, it's a it's a human body with a kitty cat head on it. Actually, she kind of looks a little bit like uh, like Omaha the cat dancer, just a little yes. bit. So, well, that's a good thing, I guess. And uh, and of course, they they end up shooting her down. We cut to Han, Luke, and Leia, and they're on this planet for yet again another diplomatic mission. 
Now, the neat thing about this, and I'm going to cover this a little bit more in my notes section, is that it's just Han, Luke, and Leia. Got no Lando, got no Chewie, got no droids. I just feel that's worth pointing out. But like I say, I'm going to get back to that in my notes section. They're walking down the street and they're having a conversation about you know what's going on in their lives and blah, blah, blah. And they look up and they see that X-Wing with a smoking trail behind it being pursued by the Y-Wing fighters. And Han takes an instant dislike to this situation and guesses, correctly as it turns out, that the X-Wing pilot is one of their people and the Y-Wing pilots, well, they've got to be the bad guys. just happens to actually be what the case is. They all run, they get in the Millennium Falcon, and we actually get a really, really nice... Um, battle scene very reminiscent of uh the part in you know the ben's death and tie fighter attack sequence of, of the original star wars we've got luke in one of the turrets but this time leia is in the other turret as han flies the ship and they go after the uh the y-wings and they take them all out they land and they rescue the uh the kitty cat pilot who's uh still alive later on in the hospital she's talking about how she was coming uh, to the nearest rebel base, basically looking for help. And now that she's found them, you know, won't, won't they please help her out that uh, they're fighting the remnants of the Empire on their planet? And Leia and, and the others are kind of taken aback by this because they're like, well, look, you know, we, we you know, now that the Empire has been defeated, we have, uh, you know, we're privy to all the Empire's records and everything. And there's never been any Imperial activity you know, in this sector, you know, where your planet is. So who the hell have you been fighting all this time? So it's a big mystery. And they decide to actually go to planet kitty cat. And there they have this little round table discussion thing. And they're comparing notes. And while there's definitely been a battle going on, we've definitely been fighting somebody. We need to get to the bottom of this. What's been going on. So everybody piles into the Falcon and they go to the enemy planet to basically find out who is it that they've been fighting all this time. And of course they get shot down. They crash land. And there's a whole lot of talky, 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 talky. And eventually they get kidnapped by another band of kitty cat men. And basically, long story short, for no reason that I could really discern in this, I mean, it's not made obvious exactly what the motives are, but basically, the head, what would you call him, like, vizier, advisor, whatever this the, guy's position the top is. top cat. Top cat. <laughs> That's brilliant. I don't even know. What the hell is this guy's name? They don't even, I don't even see his name listed here. Anyway, oh, Dern, that's his name. Dr. Meow Meow. <laughs> Meow Mix. His name is Dern. And he's play, basically playing both sides against the middle. For what reason, we're not really made privy to. That was my main sticking point to this story, is that Dern's motivations are never really made clear. There hey, wasn't it like in the last issue that somebody was doing the exact same thing yes yes some so it's like yeah so it just seems like the thing to do i guess yeah just stir Jedi. Shit, basically yeah and dern gets taken out at the end of the story everybody realizes that hey we're we're actually all rebels and this dern, you know dern guy's just been setting us against each other why are we doing this? Let's all be friends. You know, let's uh, let's have sing, some sing some 
<laughs> sing some kitty kumbaya. <laughs> kumbaya. And at the very end of the story, in a scene kind of reminiscent of, uh, of that one part in Return of the Jedi, Luke wanders off all by himself and he's staring up at the stars and Leia comes in and says, you know, what are you so sad? You know, what's, what's your problem, basically? And Luke's all upset because, as you just said, actually, this is, uh, this is happening a lot lately with them where there's somebody behind the scenes is stirring this shit and Luke's, the final panel is just uh, Leia trying to comfort her brother as he's looking all pensive and he says, what's going on in this galaxy? What is wrong with this galaxy? <laughs> The hell is God damn it! When I was a kid, <laughs> <laughs> the hell is wrong with you people? <laughs> and that's pretty much the end of this issue. As you can probably <clears throat> tell, I did not have a pre-written synopsis for this one because I screwed up and <laughs> wrote a synopsis for the next issue, which uh, you had already written a synopsis for. So, But I feel like I did a pretty fair job regardless because, you know, just it just ain't that, that yeah. fantastic of an issue. But anyway, yeah. what did well, we it, it, was, it was a vague one, so you didn't spoil it for anybody. Right. It's very nice of you because I'm <laughs> sure, yeah. Well, I mean, come on. <coughs> Pardon me. <clears throat> I've just never been a fan of the like. Let's take a human body and put a kitty cat, an Earth kitty cat, on the the, you know, on the shoulders of it and call it an alien. You know, there's, right? And there's even some like at the beginning of this uh, when they're walking through the, you know, when um, Hanley and Luke are just walking through town chatting with each other. There are other there's some inventive aliens. There's one guy with like a big nose walking behind him who's sort of low slung and you know just doofy you know that you know it's like come on you know we've we've got rabbits we got a kitty cat on ahead and and Pliff and those guys that makes sense but you know come on kitty cat people I mean, are we gonna? I, I, I mean, now I'm plausibly thinking we it it wouldn't have been too far out if there was a dog world that was the enemy of the kitty cat world, you know. Um. What? And now this this is going way back, and in our Star Wars Star Trek comics, but weren't there kitty cat people in that too? Was yes. that? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, well, so I'd maybe that's what soured me on kitty cat people. I don't well, know. I tell you what soured I'm a cat. On, I, I like cats. I tell you what I soured like us on kitty cat people was that crappy issue with the with Han and the crystals. There, remember the the lead bad guy was a psychic kitty cat. A, yeah, it was like Sisk or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. His name sounded like somebody clearing their throat. Basically, yeah. Well, this one they give her the name Minka, so at least she sounds like she's Russian. <laughs> well, isn't one of them named Sammy? And really? I was just like, yeah, that that was my reaction as well. Was was like, really? I mean, I don't want to seem wishy washy here, you know, because I, at the same rate, I get really sick of names like you know, Narco Knife Wielder or something, you know, for Star Wars <laughs> yes. names, but. You know, come on, Sammy, and what was the one that we had not long ago that was just, oh, it was like Barney? Yeah, it was Barney. Barney. Come on, Barney is not a Star Wars name. Sammy, not a Star Wars name. It's a Davis Jr. name, not a... a, (laughs) Right. It it just doesn't work for Star Wars. 
So I don't know. You know, you gotta you gotta find that that happy medium somewhere. You know, with the, the sad the, names. The sad thing is the art's pretty good in it. You know, yeah. I mean, uh, the especially like you said that that one the the one um, dog fight is very nice. The way that the I, I I just like the way that he draws the falcon from different angles and from over people's shoulders and stuff. It looks really neat. It's a cat fight. Don't be a racist asshole. <laughs> it is a cat fight. That's true. Um, but otherwise, it's just a it's a wheel spinner. Another wheel yes. spinner. Yes. Another bit of you know sort of galactic politics on a local scale dealt with by main characters who should be maybe dealing with a larger scale problem but at the same time their sort of hands are tied of having a larger scale problem like the empire or something that you could really have you know it's coming though it's definitely coming it's coming because obviously they can't keep this up for very long without it getting repetitive it's already starting to get a little repetitive yeah. you know yeah it is and it's 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 definitely starting to it's starting to wear and i i think you can tell that with um you know some of the the creative team is starting to rotate and that sort of thing so yeah i i think they're you know they're trying to work on it at least that that's kind of sort of my feel is that they're they're trying to do something with it but yeah, you know, we'll we're gonna see shortly though where that goes. Um, <laughs> what else you got for notes? That's about it for me. Yeah, this wasn't a a big one for me. No, I I don't think much of it, but uh, <laughs> I do have some notes on this one though. What's you, you know, tell? Well, right off the bat, the cover. Now, I love how Han and Luke look on this cover. Yes. I really, really like how they look. Especially, I like how they're colored. You know, Han, Han's outfit pretty much is a standard Han Solo outfit. Whereas Luke, I, he, he looks very different in this. He's got, you know, black, like, knee-high boots, brown pants. But then he's got this baggy, it's almost like his tattooing-style shirt. But it's a collared shirt. It's like a wraparound, like a collared wraparound shirt. But it's a, it's like a burnt orange kind of color i don't know why i think it looks cool but it just does there's something about it that really works it's it's basically it's the same color as like his x-wing flight suit but uh i really like that but that's about all of the cover that i really do like i think the color scheme is just doesn't work for the rest of the cover it's almost random it, it is doesn't really yeah flow together too well it's like we're zoomed in too far on a picture because with the placement of the UPC symbol where it is, there's this weird yellow-orange thing at the corner, uh, at the bottom left corner of the box, that it's supposed to be like a crackling campfire. like campfire. But with that UPC code right where it is, it's like we're zoomed in too far, and you can't quite make out what you're actually looking at. It just looks really strange. And then... That clawed hand holding that very huge, you know, that very large, very un-Star Wars looking blaster just dominates the cover. So you're getting a very un-Star Wars image as your focal point of your cover. And that just doesn't work from an artistic standpoint. But it's mostly the coloring. I mean, 
for some reason they keep coloring blasters purple on all these covers. I don't know why. But the only other thing that I do really like about it is I, I like the uh, the kind of undefined nature of the aliens in the background. They actually look kind of kind of neat, like kind of Yeah, they do. Yeah, they're actually kind of cool looking. Now the the corner box, you know, up in the upper left hand corner, we've got the little Marvel corner box. You know, this was still at a time where all the Marvel books had a, a box up there that. You know, showed you something about the issues. You know, the the you know the title as far as you know they would have pictures. Uh, you know, if it was the Avengers, it'd be like headshots, like Captain America and those guys, or something like that. With this one, this is the new one that we just went to. I think we just went to this as of '92, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's right. So '92, you had Han and Chewie looking exactly the same as they do here, but on the cover of '92, you had Han and Leia. Um, basically looking like they did in the empire strikes back leia was wearing her white hoth outfit and luke was wearing what kind of looked like a combination of his hoth jacket with you know over top of like his bespin fatigues but he was all colored in white with with brown boots whereas on this one you know it's all the same artwork but the coloring is completely different you've got leia wearing her hoth fatigues but they're colored red and blue which is a really kind of strange look she looks basically it's the same color scheme of that outfit that she wore um in issue what was it 86 where she kind of looked like kitty pride like she had kind of like a superhero outfit on and then luke is colored as if this was his orange flight outfit you know his x-wing flight outfit so it's weird they keep changing they, they're keeping the same box but they keep changing the colors of the outfits inside but I think this is the only time that Luke's is going to be colored all orange like this. Most of the rest of the time, it's all white. But anyway, um, got a few specific notes on this one. Page three, um, that first panel, and actually throughout the book, really, the aliens in this, I like a lot. They actually are very reminiscent of uh, Al Williamson-style yeah. aliens, like from the newspaper stuff. But especially that one that's like right behind Han Solo, and he's all kind of like Batman in the Batman shirt. Yeah, yeah, it does look like a Batman shirt. You're right. Yeah, he's got like a Batman wife beater on. That's actually pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Now again, inside the book here, you know, this first shot on page three is Han, Luke, and Leia all walking together. And they have new outfits on too. And I really like how this looks because Han has uh inside the book he's the one with the burnt orange colored shirt on so he's got like his standard pants and vest but then he's got a, a different you know instead of just the white shirt this time it's like a burnt orange it's it's a different look for him then leia's all in pink which looks kind of kind of different for her it's kind of nice but i like luke's outfit too because it's it's almost like a combination of his outfit from return of the jedi and his very first outfit from tattooing it's like a weird mashup of the two Again, it looks vaguely priestly to me. I don't know why I keep thinking that. It looks uh, like an Asian priest of some sort. Yeah, yes. yeah. Almost like, maybe like a not quite a samurai outfit, but you you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. But I like that. He's still just wearing the one glove, which is starting to annoy me at this point. Uh, that's got to be some sort of mandate or uh, yeah. something about selling the, figures well, or something. You know, you start wearing one glove, and the next thing you know, you start having sleepovers with little kids at your house and stuff. It's just <laughs> a slope. All right. 
does Leia's statement here make any sense at all? I, I don't quite get it. Um, she says, uh, all right, well, this conversation starts out, and Han says, you know, Luke, Leia goes, I got to tell you, when the brass asked us to come here on the, that diplomatic mission, I never expected to get the kind of hospitality we've had since we landed. And, and Luke says, I know what you mean, Han. It's a side effect of the rebellion success that I never looked for. And Leia says, but it does make a kind of sense, Luke. After all, the backwater planets like this one uh, were usually the hardest hit by the Empire's tyranny while it existed. And the people here were so far from... Uh, the, uh, we're so far from where the center of the... A- uh, I'm sorry, I can't read. And the people here were so far from the center of the action. You know how... And she goes on, and I'm thinking, what you just said completely contradicted itself. You know, either you're really hard hit because the Empire's got you under their thumb and you know they've got their eye on you, or you're so far removed. You can't have it both ways. Right, right. So That just kind of jumped out at me as like, I'm not sure that makes any kind of sense at all. I'm um, not a big fan of Joe Duffy as a writer. Oh, see, I am, though. I am, but it's just... I hate to say it, examining these again so many years later, yeah, I'm starting to see some of the some of the holes in some of these plots much more than I used to. Uh. And then the third panel here, and, I, and this is extremely nitpicky, but the third panel here, none of what... None, nothing of what Han Solo says here, technically speaking, is accurate. Because he, they're talking about the legends that have built up around the three of them, you know, and how these people at the, this planet basically worship them, you know, because of their heroics and everything. And Han says, you know, he's describing the three of them, and he says, Han, Han says, Princess Leia Organa, who forsook her place in the Imperial Senate to avenge her destroyed world. No, she didn't. No, she didn't at all. The Imperial Senate got dissolved while she was, uh, you know, she was captive on the Death Star, and her homeworld was destroyed then. So she wasn't, she didn't become a rebel to avenge anything. That all happened after she was already a rebel and got captured for it. And then he describes Luke Skywalker, last of the Jedi Knights, who felled the Emperor and most of his dreaded minions. No, he didn't. <laughs> he didn't kill the Emperor. And Lando, Lando the killed Death Star. Him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so neither one of the things he says really is true at all. Uh, Lando, Luke Skywalker, all those humans look alike to me. <laughs> um, pages five and six, which is the uh, the battle where they jump into the Falcon and go out and, and fight Y wings. You know, you're using the turret guns on uh, on the Millennium Falcon was really, really cool. That was like the saving grace of the issue for me because that part was beautifully drawn, nicely paced, and it just felt like old-school Star Wars to me. Although it has to be noted that on page six, that second panel, Luke totally looks like he's straight into shit right there. Yeah, he does. He's going... But, uh... Okay, (laughs) you're going to love this one. All right, go to page seven. Okay. This is the scene where they take Minka to the hospital. Who in the hell are all these people just hanging out? Just hanging out. Wa- like They're all like facing or watching, too. There's like molten lava head, and there's little mincing, weird, like, um, forehead dude. 
And then there's that Forehead dude in the background dude. that looks like he's out of G.I. Joe or something. <laughs> yeah, just... <laughs> Who the hell are these just people? Just hanging out. They're yeah. just hanging out in this woman's hospital room. Now, if I know one thing about hospitals, and I can't imagine it would be that different, even if it was a completely different galaxy, they... You know, if you're not there, if you're not like friends or relatives or there for a purpose, they yeah, shoot the you the hell, hell out. out of there. Yeah. They don't let you just hang around and be privy to all these secret conversations. And oh, it's just it's kind of stupid. I, but they never do explain who any of these people are. They're not they're just like, gawkers. Some yeah. of them, they're just like really. There's someone with a cat's head instead of a human head in the, the hospital room. Let me go up there. I'll. I don't know. I'm maybe security. they're interns or something. You know, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> maybe they're like students or something. I don't know. Uh, let's see. Page nine. What do we got going on with page nine? Oh, I like this. I couldn't quite figure out the dynamic that was in play here, but I like where um, they're all aboard the Falcon and they're all talking about. Um, you know, the end of the Empire, basically. These guys are being brought up to speed on what's really been going on because they weren't aware that the Empire was even... Had, had been defeated. They thought that they were still fighting the Emperor, that, they, that the Emperor was still around and everything. And Han starts to say that, that he, Luke, and Leia were basically the main players in, in taking down the Empire. And Luke interrupts him to basically point out that you know that they're just important members of the rebellion, and you know basically that they were just doing their job, kind of thing. And I can't determine in this part whether Luke is being humble, whether he's being evasive. Like maybe he doesn't trust these people, and so he doesn't want to reveal to them just yet exactly you know how important they are, or whether he's being a Jedi. You know, the the whole thing about, you know, adventure, excitement, you know. Not, yeah, humble. Yeah, being humble about the whole thing. I couldn't quite figure that out, but one way or the other, I liked the scene regardless of, of what Joe Duffy was going for with that, you know, that Luke would kind of jump in and and downplay, you know, their role in, in you know, in the saga, basically. Let's see. Got a few more notes here. Oh, this is a great one. Okay, Pages 9 and 10, the, the first panel on both of these pages, pages 9 and 10, where the hell is this? You've got Han at the control yes. of the Millennium Falcon, and then there's like a friggin' auditorium behind him that's large enough for Luke to be standing up giving a lecture while everybody else is seated, seated around a table. Now, this isn't the holographic chess table. It actually looks like a friggin' card table. Where is this? The Millennium Falcon cockpit does not look like that. No. So, <laughs> well, when you see the reverse shot, you see the window. So he's at the Millennium Falcon cockpit. So it's I don't know. Maybe they can. Maybe it has like the walls are like those you know cubicle walls. They can just <laughs> move them around and feng shui it a different way. Whenever there's know. maybe Princess Leia is like I don't like the way the Falcon's laid out. Let's redecorate it. <laughs> Something's up, though, yeah. Okay, this was probably my biggest nitpick, and actually it's going to be my most fun nitpick of the uh, of the entire issue. So after they crash land, they actually find that they've crash landed in kind of like a, like a gully, like a recess, and there's no way out. They're, they're like in a box canyon type of thing. 
Luke's like, hey, no problem. I'll just use the force and levitate everybody up to the to the top of the you know the top of the cliff. He levitates Leia. He levitates what's her face, Minka or whatever. Minka. And then look at that next panel. Oh, I'm so tired. I'm thinking, what a pussy Jedi Knight. He all he did was levitate two people, and he's completely wiped after this. What? Yeah, man, Samuel Jackson would kick his ass. <laughs> What's the matter with you? We were, yeah, they, I mean, Jedi were doing shit like that like it was in their sleep, you know? I think it's very interesting, too. And it's interesting and, and very strange. Han is the one that explains the Force to the kitty cat people in this one. That's weird. I mean, it's kind of cool. And maybe he's coming around about this whole force thing, which is something. Remember, you know, I had stated been quite talking a while ago. About yeah, that, I, yeah. I, I wanted to see that, but it's kind of strange in this one. Um, let's see. Jumping ahead again, page. Ah, oh, where the hell are we at here? Oh, okay, page fifteen, panel four. I just like the little comedic moment here, where uh, they're all talking about the plot and Han. Han is actually pretty much in character the way he was in, like, say, like Return of the Jedi. He's almost used to, like, comedic effect throughout this issue, but mostly in a really good way, although he does come off as a little bit slow. There's a great moment where they're all kind of discussing the plot and everything. Luke's got the whole thing figured out. And Luke says, hasn't it been obvious that someone's deceiving someone here? And uh, Han plays it off by going, huh? obvious oh yeah oh sure yeah of course it's obvious i I just like that little you know the little comedic moment there um you know this this story it's it's not the greatest by any stretch but i gotta be honest you know what i really did like about this one you know besides you know the art was really good that one battle part was really good you know it's just han luke and leia in this one on a quick recollection, have we ever seen that before? I don't know Certainly if we ever Certainly not have. in the movies. You know, the movies, you always had at least some other person there. I mean, the, the closest I can think of is we get that moment between Luke and Leia in the Ewok village, you know, where, where you're basically, you know, he lets her in, that, you know, in on the fact that Vader's their father and their, their brother and sister, and then he wanders off and then Han comes up. But that's about the closest you ever get. The rest of the time, there's always somebody else just kind of hanging about. Really, the, uh, the only other note I've got, um, besides if you want to go over ads or whatever, is uh, in the letters column, there was uh, a letter writer here, Luke Filmer, Asked for the uh, the return of Sherbry, the Tag family, and uh, Admiral Guile. Um, I think we're going to get one, maybe two out of three. I know definitely one out of three, so I'll leave you guys guessing on, uh, on which we're going to get back. Admiral Guile, by the way, I had to look that up. I knew the name sounded familiar, but I couldn't remember who the hell he was. He was that admiral from the, uh, from the Simonson. I think Michelini was still writing at the time. He was that one... He was kind of the fat, uh, the fat admiral. He's the one that uh, he took a pot shot at Luke, and then remember the very next issue, Luke ended up having to crash land his uh, his X wing on that planet with the with right. the hot redhead girl, that desert planet, because mm-hmm. of that shot. That it was that guy. I mean, he wasn't terribly memorable, but at the same rate, he was you know one of the more 
you know, interesting and slightly more fleshed out Imperial people that we'd seen in a while. I think he was also the the commander during that story with the the screamer. Remember, they had captured that screamer. Oh thing? God, yes. Yeah. Um, he uh, also asked a question that I felt you and I should have asked. We completely missed this. At least I think we did. What happened to the rebel base on Arbra? When we left off pre-Return of the Jedi, the rebel base was on Arbra. And then Return of the Jedi happens. Now we're all on Endor. And the only thing I can think of is we didn't really catch it because they're basically the same friggin' planet. Right. You know? Except I mean, they're for the big crystal power source at the yeah, core of it. But you know, I mean, even they're they're so similar that even like the 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 Hujibs end up coming into the, these later stories, and I don't think we really even question that. That wait a minute, how did why are the Hujibs like are the Hujibs still hanging around, yeah, uprooted yeah. from their native planet now? You know, just to go hang out with these guys. So yeah, now we should have asked that question ourselves, but. Um, but yeah, speaking of, uh, I just thought of this. I meant to mention this at the beginning of the show. Speaking of uh, pre-Return of the Jedi Star Wars stuff, dude, I saw a Star Wars T-shirt the other day. I've got to have it. Was it was a girl was wearing it. You remember the cover to the Ellie issue, and it's Vader, and I think he's a hologram, but it's Vader standing over. Um, I say it's like she's cradling. Yeah, like the body or something. It's that one that I remember commenting how because of the way the Star Wars logo is placed on that cover, it always looks like Vader has one of those Nazi, Nazi pipes on the yeah, yeah Nazi helmet. That was a cover, or I mean a T-shirt, but it was just the Vader image. It didn't you know it didn't have anything. It, it didn't say Star Wars. It didn't have anything Marvel. It didn't have the other characters. It was just Vader, but it was taken from that image from that cover. I thought that was really really cool. Saw it on a T-shirt. Marvel only printed one, one letter about the, that Alderanian stormtrooper story, number eighty-six. Best issue of the series. They print one letter about it. I was like, really? <laughs> that was about it, really. Yeah, the only other things I got to mention on this is there are there is one good ad in this. Which one's that? It's on the it's on the inside back cover, and that's for the Indiana Jones TSR game yeah. that we used that you used to own. I still do. And uh, and the only other really interesting thing in like ad stuff that I saw is it does have an introducing Star Comics. Yes, uh, ad with where you actually see the what the Ewoks look like, and it's like this little you know beaver. Yeah, it is. It's a beaver <laughs> for sure. <laughs> that uh, yeah, I made note of that too, and I, I'll probably talk about that more when we get to the next issue because I I think I smell synergy. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking that maybe one of the reasons next issue is what it yes. is is because of the uh the premiere not only of star comics you know that had um ewoks and i think they had a droids title too if i'm not mistaken but also ewoks and droids were on tv by this point 
So I kind of suspect that that might play into uh, the story that uh, that we get next time around. But uh, we're going to take a little break, and we will come back with uh, issue 94. And then after that, we are going to, uh, like I keep saying, we're back on format. We are going to resume our coverage of the further adventures of Indiana Jones. Yes. Anytime you plan to visit Amazon.com, please be aware that if you use the Amazon.com link located on our website, www.2TrueFreaks.Libson.com, 2 True Freaks will receive a referral bonus for any items you purchase. There is absolutely no additional cost to you whatsoever for doing this. All proceeds go directly toward keeping new episodes of all your favorite 2 True Freaks affiliated podcasts rolling, and it really helps us out. So please... Use our Amazon.com link anytime you plan to visit Amazon.com. Welcome to Amazon. I love you. (laughs) And we are back. And uh, this time around, Chris is going to uh, synopsize Star Wars number 94. I just want to say that... uh, we're uh, this is kind of a, a an auspicious occasion because we are entering uh, a whole new era of uh, Marvel Star Wars. Sadly, the the last era, really. Um, but this uh, issue does definitely herald uh, uh, the beginning of Cynthia Martin as the as the regular new uh, penciler on the title. But also, um, we're entering. Uh, how should I put this? We're, we're, we're blazing new trails, so to speak, because I was noticing that for this issue, and I believe the next issue, too, 95, which we won't be covering today. We'll get to that one uh, next, uh, next time around. But neither one of these have anything on them in Wikipedia. You know, because I'll, I'll often go to Wikipedia just to see what notes, you know, and observations other people have made, and there's always a synopsis for all the issues. There's nothing in there for issue 94 and i believe for issue 95 as well it's like they're just skipped weird so uh so we're kind of laying the groundwork so to speak for uh you know for covering these to to the best of my knowledge they have not been uh, spoken of uh anywhere else on the on the internet so uh kind of not that bad no no, especially not 95. As, as I was just going to say, especially when we get to 95, yeah. we'll find out. Yeah. But anyway, I'll shut up now and uh, let you talk about number 94. Yes, because we're going to find out how this issue is not so bad, but ah, not so good either. <laughs> but um, as, as you said, we got a... Um, now, the cover of this... Uh-huh. Is it is this um I don't see any names on it. But would I be right guessing that that's maybe Cynthia Martin and Walt Simonson maybe? There's it's, something Walt Simonsony about it. It's once again from what I can uh find on the net, it's credited solely just to Cynthia Martin. But again, much like the cover to last issue, I think I see some um Tom Palmer in there. Uh, Particularly with that stormtrooper helmet, so 
Well, I'm I'm saying, look at the the way the Ewok's headpiece is tied around his neck, right? And the bushes, the outline of the bushes behind him, that looks Walt Simonson. It, it does. Me, it looks very Walt Simonson. Paint paint a paint a picture, a mental picture for the for the listeners of what we're looking at here. Here is your mental picture. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it is a very smug looking Ewok. With a with a very uh, with an Ewok dung eating grin, <laughs> and who's maybe wearing Ewok mittens because he only has a thumb and uh, <laughs> a pad, but he's holding a spear and he's got his his uh, foot propped up on on the helmet of a stormtrooper. I think it's that sad stormtrooper from that one issue where Chewbacca was like pulling his head. And remember, he was like pulling him up <laughs> his head up at him. That's what it reminds me of. This stormtrooper doesn't look as much sad as he looks. Has that kind of like eh, <laughs> look on his face, a, a little fish face to him. <laughs> well, anyway, this is the um, April nineteen eighty five issue. It uh, was sixty five cents if you bought it off the comic rack, which you most likely did if you bought this when it came out. I did. Um, we have a script by Joe Duffy, Cynthia Martin, making her grand appearance as pencils, Tom Palmer inking, Rick Parker doing the letters. Now, that's the guy who did the Ghostbusters theme, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Glen- Glennis Wine, color, and Ascenti editor, and of course, Jim Shooter, editor-in-chief. Let me just take a little sip of my lemonade, though, I'm... and uh, prepare... <laughs> In the class for for this story. <laughs> Is there anything special about that lemonade? No, it's just your off the shelf, um, brisk lemonade. Ah, I would prefer to have Country Time, but I can't find Country Time around here. Country Time, Country Time, <laughs> Country Time. Tastes like that good old-fashioned lemonade. Oh, my God, does that take me back. <laughs> oh, now we get to, that's how we get to find out how old the people are that are, that are listening. <laughs> All right, so this, this one's uh, issue 94. The, the um, title of the stories is Small Wars. Star and, uh, Wars, the Small Wars. Small Wars. Hey, uh, you know, lucky us, it's another story of post-Empire politics. Yay! Yes! This time it's quote-unquote comedy. And um, Admiral Akbar's aide, Hero the Bugman, is really planning to use his position to destroy the Alliance so his race can, guess what, take over the universe. How is he going to do this? By starting a fight between the two, you know, two cute fuzzy denizens he's got here, the the fuzzy lasbies and the Ewoks. And then blowing everybody up. A masterful plan. So um so it seems he, he started all this trouble by telling Tippet the Ewok that Alashbi is scragging his old lady. So the Ewoks want to go to war over this. <laughs> and uh, Han seems to be the only one who's kind of amused over over all this. Luke, Leia, and Akbar, you know, they're trying to dr- broker a peace, but the Ewoks, being you know, 
just bloodthirsty little bastards are, are set to kick the little uh, Lasby's asses. And um, if any, uh, we got to go back a few issues, but remember the Lasby's are these little sort of bluey, fuzzy, they're sort of proto-teddy bear, Ewoky, even more plush, toy-like, <laughs> happy little eyelash creatures that when they hit puberty turn into gigantic... Um, I was going to say Hulk-like things called Hucks. So mm-hmm. so they're sort of a, a smaller, cuter, fuzzier version of the Ewoks. And um, while Luke, for some reason, is doing some Jedi training with the wimpy Lasbys, the Ewoks get pissed and start flinging rocks in, in their general direction. And in a comedy moment, Luke deflects a boulder into the lurking hero... Uh, taking the taking the piss out of um, out of him pretty much. So Lando comes up with the bright idea of Tippett and the Lasby settling up man to man. You know, sort of like a um, oh, what was it? A muck time Star Trek <laughs> type of thing. And this this of course is a really bad idea. And um, so Han thinking this is Han with another great idea gives the Lasby a blaster to sort of give him a fighting chance against the Ewoks. Another bad idea. The Las- Lasby goes kind of gun crazy and just starts squeezing off shots in any of any direction. And one of this, in another comedy moment, destroys Hero's gun. So he's just sort of getting, getting, um, getting beat up on the sidelines. <laughs> and then all hell breaks loose as the Lasby uh, basically hulks out into a huck. And sometime, somehow, you know, the huck decides to beat on Hero, um, causing his Hero's invasion force to basically just leave him behind because he's obviously such a pathetic loser. So basically all's well that ends well as Hero gets his just desserts and the Ewoks apparently make peace for some reason with the Lasbys. <laughs> they were united over a common threat. As I'm reading this, I'm going, man, I don't like my um, I don't like my synopsis. It doesn't make sense. And then I go, oh yeah, that's right. I was writing down what happened in the story. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think you're much too harsh on this one. I, first I, of all, my, my first question to you, though. Now, you pronounced his name Hero. It's spelled H H I R H I R O G. Now I had pronounced it Hirog. It w- it would the proper pronunciation be Hero? No, I. You know what? I probably didn't see the G. Oh, okay. And is because I was thinking that your <laughs> pronunciation might actually make more sense because Hirog kind of sounded strange. And the Hirog. The race's name is the Hiromi. Is that right? Something like that. Something yeah. Like that. I didn't really bother to like take it to memory because they were such a stupid race. Oh, we're going to see more of them, so you might as well get used to them now. Yeah, see, I kind of like him. I like his look because he. I looks, do too. He looks like the cartoon cockroaches from the old raid bug spray commercials. That's what I. Yes, like these guys. Yes, and he <laughs> definitely he definitely checks into the Roach Motel at the end of <laughs> at the end of this one. You see, my problem with this is really. The story, and I, I, I'm making fun of it, but it, it's it's an amusing, it's a, just a, a, a cute little story. 
Um, but I don't know. Maybe I'm I'm a, I'm a little ticked because basically this. I remember when this came out. This blew my mind mm-hmm. because I was just like, "Oh my god, the art has taken a, a different turn." You know, yes. there's there's a whole new feel to the art, and I liked it. I think actually the thing that's standing in the way now now looking upon this and 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 it probably blunted the the blow of it being such a radical departure in art styles by having Tom Palmer ink this one. Mm-hmm. And I think Tom Palmer's inks look really nice on this, but I think they kind of defeat Cynthia Martin's style a little bit. Yes. You know? It, it kind of, and 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 an exact opposite of what I've been raving about is how Tom Palmer keeps things looking very similar by having a consistent inking style. Here, I I don't want it to look similar. You know, I I right. if it's good if you're going to depart from the style, go ahead and and depart from the style. So you can see that Tom Palmer look in it, especially in the characters, the the human characters. And and the Ewoks and uh, familiar characters, right? You, know, you can see how he's he's sort of doctored it up a little bit to look to sort of transition between what it looked like before and what it's going to look like in the near future. But uh, I just I love her drawing style and I love the way she lays out a page and I love the cartoony aspect of it. I love the the you know. Sometimes you see it like in R2 when he'll be moving, he'll be stretched off and yes. stretched out a little funny or something. But it reminds me of like the um, Nelvana cartoon yes. from the holiday special where, you know, you can sort of see him moving cartoony like it's stretching and going rip, 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 and do it, you know, like it's hel- you know, sort of like the baby in South Park with his helmet like or, you know, the, the, the top of his dome just sort of like flopping up and down like a garbage can or something like that. Right. But it works. It totally does. That's why I loved it then and that's why I still love it now is it totally looks like that cartoon style which I loved. I, I thought it was brilliant. Mhm. Mhm. And uh I mean at, at this point as as you know as I was griping about in the last comic something had to happen, you right. know. And come on, so you know, either get a really good artist in here, get a new storyline, or you know, please Lucasfilm let them do real, you know, stories without nixing them or something. And I never really expected it would be just a complete change in the sort of graphic look of it. And that I I was really excited about it, and so I was like, here we go, we're getting some new life is going to get breathed into this title. And in fact, it's like the the death knell almost, or you know, it's not because of the art, but like, but a lot of people were like getting gripey about the art. And I'm going to be I curious at that point what the what the letters pages are going to reflect. Now, if if memory serves, the letters page uh, becomes kind of scarce, uh, <laughs> right? Shortly, where where it almost disappears. I think it does disappear for for a good many issues, as I recall, but. Uh, It'll be curious to to see. I you know in, in my notes on this one, or rather my synopsis, because I accidentally wrote up uh, the synopsis on this one as well. I had uh, I had summed it up by uh, 
at, at one point in the synopsis, I just said, you know, hilarious antics accompanied by a dramatically and some might say drastically dynamic new art style. You know, I, I'll, I'll, I still hold to that because I do remember, you know, that, that it seemed like just as many people, you know, loved this new art style as, as really railed against it. You know, uh, it, it seemed to be very divisive. You know, either you loved it or you hated it. I loved it. I still love it. I was very nervous. Um, I was too. I know you're exactly what you're going to say. Yeah. As we were approaching this era, I got to thinking, oh God, you know, am I, am, you know, am I going to get to this and, and look at it and go, wow, what did I ever see in this? I'm so glad to rediscover this stuff and reread it again after so many years and find that, no, I think it, I think it holds, not only does it hold up, I think it's even better than I originally thought it was. Especially, you know, the next two issues, we're, we're going to have a, a fantastic battle, you know, featuring Luke Skywalker and a, and a bold new uh, enemy. And, you know, a new kind of, uh, of energy weapon is introduced and all that. That stuff is just incredible, incredible artwork. I can see how well, I was going to say, and we're going to get more. We're, we're, Cynthia Martin's art style is going to get more unleashed as we go along, right. too. So that's I'm really looking forward to that. Absolutely. Um, Cynthia Martin unleashed. <laughs> what do you got for notes on this one? Well, I mean, it's it's it is. For for one thing, it's it's full of good sound effects and Wookie calls and <laughs> boffs. There, there's actually one very, of the Lotspies gets hit in the head and it actually says boff. Very first appearance of Chewie on page three, panel one. Gronk! Gronk, the classic. <laughs> yep, it's a, it is, it's a classic. <laughs> um, I love... I... I I love how Han Solo is just sort of the casual observer in this. Usually he's the one getting annoyed at antics. You know, he's just right. like, oh, Jesus, get these guys out of here. This time he's just like, all right, you know, the little guys are fighting over a lady. How cute, you know? And, you know, just refuses to get caught up in the in the drama of it, which I can't understand why, you know, the... Just the whole idea that you know the universe is going to get taken over by starting—it's—it's it's funny, in a way, actually, in the context of the prequels, because right. you have this sort of like comedy, you know, shit can version of the Emperor's plan. I'm going to start just like. It, the butterfly effect, you know. Right. I, I can, I'll just set an Ewok and a Lasby against each other, and that will make you know set off the dominoes that will will, um, you know, ensure our world domin or our universe domination plot. And in fact, it actually, unlike the Emperor, it's set, it basically just sets out his downfall. You know, meticulously. You know, after that, it, it just works completely against him. Which, in theory, is a very could be a very witty and and funny story, but it's just awkward here. You know, it's it's handled very awkwardly story wise. Art wise, it's a riot. There's just all sorts of fun stuff going on. You know, in in the panels, and I think this is. I'm trying to think if this was something we were talking about 
maybe when we were um, in in our panel at the at Star Wars Celebration, but we're we're talking about how the you know is is basically when you had you had Cynthia Martin the the art and the writing were both women writing it right all of a sudden on Star Wars which was a very like basically at this point especially it was the domain of the 13 year old kid you know right the 8 to thir- 8 to 15 year old kid and you have two women writing it and it and it takes on a decidedly um feminine sort of bent to it you know with with stories more about interpersonal relationships and politics rather than shoot 'em ups and a sort of cute and we didn't know it at the you know you and I didn't know it at the time I'm sure some a few people recognized it as a sort of manga you know the 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 anime sort of style of illustration which was a reason why I was afraid I wouldn't like it going back to revisit right. it all these years later because I have a long standing uh I don't know what you call it, hatred, prejudice, whatever, against that type of art. So I was afraid going back, knowing that now, that I wouldn't be able to to see in it what I had originally seen in it. And no, I actually think that it it totally works. I'm not not big on that that style of art either. There's some of it that I've liked. But for some reason, Star Wars works in that context. Uh, The the same as the um, Nelvana cartoon. Um, have you seen, and it's on our Facebook Two True Freaks page, somebody posted up a video someone did in a, in an anime style of TIE Fighter pilots. Yes, yeah. Launching out of a Star Destroyer and battling and stuff, and it's gorgeous. Yeah, it reminded it, me of that. What was that that cartoon that was out around the Akira time? Akira or something like that? No, reminded- it was the one... It took place in space, and they had like a battleship that flew around like in space. Battleship Yamato. Yamato, yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah, and that worked beautifully for Star Wars, mm-hmm. especially in the space battles. But even with the shots of like the people getting in, they were sort of getting in the Tie Fighters. Like the people would mount their transformers, you know. Right. That sounded filthy. But that you know that you would or they would show a flash where you could see the person underneath their stormtrooper right. outfit, you know, yeah. in there, and that was and it worked. Oh, I was like, this is beautiful. Somebody spent a lot of time on that. I I saw that, and the first thing I thought of was I would love to see like the the original, you know, the the um. Like the Luke Skywalker Pariah storyline. Oh, animated like that? Yeah, that would be gorgeous. Mm. That would be awesome. And here's Cynthia Martin, you know, 30 years ahead of that. Yep. Absolutely. I mean, there's already been like a a Star Wars manga adaption of all the movies, adaptation, and all that. And those work too. I've I've seen a bunch of those, and they're, they're... they're pretty neat. Mm-hmm. Also, what else you got for notes on this one? Yeah, not really that much else <laughs> to, to to tell you the 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 god honest truth. I mean, I could go through and like, you know, tell you all the all the there's there's just like not lots of nice little you know touches. I like there's a there's a really neat 
scene, and it's just it's it's stupid little shot of one of the Zeltrons like kitschy kitschy cooing. One of the uh, it's Danny, is that Danny? Yeah, she's got a new it's, hairstyle though. I don't, I'm not sure how I feel about her with dreadlocks, but yeah. And uh, I just I love the way the characters' face faces look. There's a sort of summing up shot at the end, you know, towards you know, in the last few panels of just everybody just sort of hanging out and like, well, I guess that's all taken care of. <laughs> and they're very simple, you know. Usually, you see either people they they usually put a lot of detail into the characters' faces in in Star Wars, and and they either look just like the characters and they don't look anything like like them at all. And she actually does a very minimalist approach to it right. and makes them look a lot like the characters. You know, there's just a lot of, you know, just a very, when you look at like, especially like uh, Leia, Lando and Han and the third to the last, you know, panel. Right. There's not a, really a lot of difference between what their eyes, nose and mouths look like. They're just like a set of blobs. But she's just got she nailed very, it. Yeah. yeah, she nailed it. Yeah, and um, I, I'm, I'm really, I'm really like sort of jazzed to find out more about Cynthia Martin because she didn't really do an awful lot of comics work, did she? I don't think no. she did some, like Spider Man and a few things here and there, and just seemed to like. Either I, I don't know if it was like screw the comic world I hate drawing comics or or she got more lucrative things to do or decided to ju- you know just wanted to do something else but I would have really liked to see you know what uh, what would have developed after like thirty years you know like I, today uh, if she'd just been drawing a lot. I'm I'm really hoping that uh, that we're going to be able to to find that out pretty soon because just looking at what's listed on uh, at Mike's Amazing World, I mean it, it, it lists from here through the end of Star Wars, and then um, the only other work I was familiar with is she did that um, story. I've I've always called it I Am Spider. I'm not sure what the actual name of the the storyline was, but it was a three or four part um storyline that ran through all of the spider-man titles at the time you know a different chapter in each different title and it was a story about peter parker got locked in a mental institution or something like that i don't remember much about the story i don't remember the story being particularly memorable but the art was fantastic because her art style really lent itself well to that era of Spider-Man, because I, I mm-hmm. think Spider-Man was still in the black costume at that oh, time. Oh, yes, yes. And then the only it, other thing I see listed here is that she had a run in Marvel Comics Presents, which was an anthology title, so I don't know which character she was uh, tackling here. And uh, and then one issue of um, Midnight Suns Unlimited doing the Night Stalkers in 93, and that's it. She, uh, you know, that. She just kind of just disappeared from the world of comics. So yeah, I'm very curious to find out, you know, where did she go? What happened? What happened? So, yeah. What happened? Yeah, exactly. It was funny. I was talking with I. I went to the movies yesterday with my friend Mark, and he was asking, you know, what we were doing comic wise. I said, oh, we're just hitting the. And I and I asked him, do you read? Did you read Star Wars comics? You know, in when they were coming out, the Marvel ones, and he's like, no, I was reading, like, the Fantastic Four and this and that, and and I said, well, we're just hitting the Cynthia Martin 
phase of that. And he's like, oh, yeah. And then he totally remembered, you know, he's like, she was like the last artist, wasn't she? And and, uh, it was funny. And I never thought to put uh, the connection of the similarities between their work. But he goes, yeah, she reminded me a lot of Paul Smith. She and Paul Smith reminded each other, you know, him of each other a lot. And I was like, yeah, you're, you're right. And I'd totally forgotten about Paul Smith, another artist around that time that I really liked who just sort of seemed to show up and had a really neat style. He's still around, but he's one of those guys very similar for me, very similar to, say, John Romita Jr., where I loved his style when he first started out. And then he kept changing and mutating his style, and and it eventually became something I really didn't like. And it's funny that I compare him with uh, with Ramita Junior. Uh, you know, I, I was just kind of trying to think of another person, but come to think of it, both of their styles not only did they mutate, they actually mutated into very similar styles. They're now they're very you know like blocky, you know sketchy very angular art styles, whereas originally they were more rounded and fluid. Um, rounded, yeah. fluid, with a thin, clean line. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And now they're more like, uh, almost like Klaus Janssen-y type of... I, I just don't huh. care for that art, art style at all, you know, so it's a shame. I'd be curious to see what uh, what Cynthia Martin, you know, if she's still drawing today, what her uh, art style would be today, you know, whether it's... Yeah. I did a little Wikipedia on her, and she's still doing. She does illustrations for books, oh, so okay. she's still doing illus- illustrations, or you know, illustrating. And I, uh, who knows what style it is? You know, it could be painted stuff or anything like that. I didn't check deeper than that, but uh, I surely will be. Well, with any luck. Um We'll have her on the show. I mean, it it's all been lined up. It's just a matter of uh, of schedule syncing up and that sort of thing. So, fingers crossed. Well, I'm just thinking that now it might be um, that might be a good cheapo little collector thing for me to try to get all the Cynthia all the comics that she drew because yeah, it wouldn't it wouldn't be a huge project. It might be hard to find certain ones. I don't know. <laughs> like Star Wars 107. <laughs> I'm kicking myself because I'm looking here. The last thing that's listed here at Mike's Amazing World is Midnight Suns Limited number one. I I know I used to have this book. There was a time where I had bought um, this huge collection from a comic shop that went out of business. And I quit my job and I went on eBay full time just selling comics. And that's how we were making our money for a while. I know I probably had like 50 copies of this book. And I, I just looked at my database. I did not keep one, <laughs> and I don't know why I didn't keep it. And it turns out that she, you know, she had work in that book. It just kills me that I don't have it. Plus, the cover on it's gorgeous. It's a Mark's Tex, Mark Texiera cover of uh, of Ghost Rider. So I have no idea why I didn't keep myself a copy, but I didn't kick myself now. I'd like to know uh, what this work on Marvel uh, Comics Presents was, what character that was. Because like I say, that's a, it's an anthology title, but it doesn't tell mm-hmm. me here what character it was that she worked on. It just says that she worked in there. But uh, I've got some notes on this one. Uh, let's see here. You know, whether intentionally or not, I noticed that her work is kind of done in slow reveal in this issue. Because if you look at the first page... I would argue 
that that could be a, a number of different artists. It doesn't. Yes. It doesn't look. Um, it's got the Tom Palmer look. Yeah, it looks like Tom Palmer. It actually looks like Tom Palmer inking over, um, say, like Ron Friends. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. doesn't look distinctive, if you know what I mean. And I don't mean that as an insult. It just doesn't look. You know, it doesn't look like Cynthia Martin. He probably filled in a lot of details. It looks like Endor the way Endor's right. looked the last six months. You know, with with his inks, he has a very distinct way of making trees and stuff look. And there's right. a lot of trees in Endor. But, I mean, you turn that page, and there is no mistake. Wow, (laughs) we have entered a whole new era of Star Wars because it's dynamic. It's different. It is so different from everything that we have had before. Well, one thing I remember thinking as a kid was it's it's almost like – the and this one, as you said, it sort of transitions, but as we go along – once the detail's gone, you get this color thing. It sort of looks like a cell from a from a mm-hmm. cartoon, you know, like when you've seen like a painted cell. Mm-hmm. The way that they'll like put the black down first and then just put a solid color underneath it. Oh, and I want to. I start definitely that more and more here. Yeah, I definitely want to give big uh, kudos to the colorist, who, who in this case is Glennis Wine, because as we'll see with our our next uh, comic that we're going to review, um, you know, sometimes. The colorists, not only don't they get enough credit, but a bad coloring job can destroy a book, in my opinion. Yes. You know? So, I mean, this really, you know, I, I guess in, in, a, in a funny kind of way, a good colorist is almost like, you know, a good soundtrack to a movie. You know, you really shouldn't notice it. You know what I mean? It should complement, but it shouldn't call attention to itself. And that's pretty much what she's done here. She's done a beautiful job on the colors to such a degree that you don't really even appreciate it on a conscious level unless you're looking for it. But it's a beautiful coloring job on this one. Mm-hmm. It's it's subtle, but, you know, like like at the bottom of page two, the next to the last panel of just Han leaning against a tree. Yes. It's, it's a, a very simple image. It's actually a little more detailed because of Tom Palmer. But it's just, I think it's, basically sort of three colors basically flesh color brown and blue you know for Han Schurter's skin and then the tree behind him and then it's sort of greenish color for the belt he's wearing but you don't really see that and uh-huh. it's just a great illustration yes, you know it it's 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 awesome it captures not only Han Solo but it's got that Harrison Ford yeah he's kind of smart ass yeah definitely yeah. See, I like how she draws everybody. You know, naturally, mm-hmm. I, I like some characters better than others, but I, there's nobody that I dislike. But of everybody that she draws, Han is my personal favorite because he just freaking looks like Harrison Ford. I, I can see this on film with Harrison Ford yeah. thanks to her art. It looks like she, a storyboard. She's drawing that body language that yes. Harrison Ford has, you know, yeah. that sort of easygoing body language, especially in Han Solo, you know. Well, she captures and, his kind of loose lankiness, too, if you know yes. what I mean. I mean, you, you look at, like, that recent uh, computer-animated uh, Han and Chewbacca story. I felt that that did a really good job of capturing in, you know, in 3D rendering that same look and feel of the Nelvana stuff. So, I, yes. I, you know, I, this does kind of the same thing. I love that. Uh, let's see what else. By the way, I really like uh, Han with a with a baby blue shirt as the undershirt under his vest rather than the white. I like that. It's a it's a good look for him. Um, 
Leia has an all red outfit this time around. That <laughs> looks kind of cool. It looks kind of reminiscent of like a like something from like maybe like Star Trek the Motion Picture or something because it's it almost looks like a one piece, almost like a pajama type of thing. But it's really yes. cool. I like it. I like how it looks. And it has a sort of clasp on one shoulder that's sort of like where the Star Trek insignia would be. Yeah, Starfleet insignia would be. Yeah, yeah. She draws Lando really well. You know, um, the the only thing she sometimes seems to have a little trouble with C three PO, but almost everybody yeah. seems to have trouble with C three PO here and there. But when she gets him like from the shoulders up, she nails it. Mm-hmm. Nearly everybody here gets a new color or a new outfit. I noticed that Lando, however, is back in his original The Empire Strikes Back mm-hmm. outfit. I like that because I've always liked that outfit. I always thought that looked really, really sharp. Lando is actually one of my favorite action figures as a kid just because of that cool outfit that he had. But uh, I like Luke's outfit, although this is pretty much the same thing that he was wearing last time around. Last it's time, refined yeah. a little bit. And, and thank God his lightsaber finally looks like the movie version of the lightsaber, too. Um, I love when the Ewoks are gearing up to go into battle. They've actually adapted Stormtrooper outfit, you know, the, like p- bits and pieces of Stormtrooper armor mm-hmm. into, the, you know, into their war chest or whatever you want to call it so that you know one of them might have a helmet and another one has like a stormtrooper belt or a vest or something i i thought that was really cute and you know kind of kind of accurate kind of accurate in that way that maybe a primitive race would do something like that you know just add to their arsenal you know and you know advanced technology kind of thing i thought that was really neat uh let's see what else we got here um luke I love what she's done with Luke here because for a change, maybe even for the first time, arguably, he looks like Mark Hamill. I mean, consistently throughout the We've right. seen other panels and instances where he kind of maybe resembles Mark Hamill. There was a couple instances of him being kind of photo referenced, but fairly consecutive through this entire issue, he looks like Mark Hamill. And we just didn't really see that much in this title but I particularly like pages seven and eight, especially page eight. It's a really simple little thing, but the first two panels of page eight, one of them is Luke, and he's holding his lightsaber by both hands. He's holding it straight out in front of him, and then the very next panel is his lightsaber fully activated. So you're getting like that snap hiss of the lightsaber between those two pants. It's really simple, but damn, is that cool. I It just looks cool. I just love the way it looks. Again, really dynamic stuff. Um, you know, I, I mean, I think I kind of sort of understand the criticism of folks that, that don't dig on Cynthia Martin's art. So I, I really do. But I, I just, for me... There's something, there's like a frenetic energy about it. You yeah. know what I mean? There's a real yeah, yeah. sense of, of movement and action and motion that she brings to these static images. I mean, this is just... You know, I think like, this is more easily accessible now because of, say, Clone Wars. Yes. Where yeah. you can look at Star Wars and go, okay, you know, it's okay with everything being a little bit of caricatured, you know? Right. right. Well, especially, like, I would even say, like, the first series of Clone Wars, the the hand-drawn animated stuff, I can remember Mm -hmm. at at first there were, you know, similar to the objections I heard 
uh, applied to Cynthia Martin's art style when she took over this book back in the day. I heard the same sort of criticisms made of of the hand drawn Star Wars when that, or excuse me, Clone Wars rather when that started to come out. That well, they look cartoony, or they look this, or they look that, or they don't look enough like the whatever. But it's supposed to look that way. It's stylized. And so I do see great similarities between, like, say, Cynthia Martin's Luke Skywalker and that animated version of, say, like, Obi-Wan or, or Anakin, you know, where they are right. cartooned up a bit, if you know what I mean. I, I really do like this a lot. I, I love the energy of it. But it does. I mean, there's so many panels in this, particularly with Luke, I think, because Luke's really the, you know, the, the center of the action in this issue. But when he's doing his lightsaber shtick and he's he's using the force and all that, it moves. You know what I mean? I mean, of course, it's it's, it's a static image like any comic book is, but this really feels like it's moving while you're looking at it. It's it's just it, that you know that's a hell of a trick to pull off. You know, she, a, she's really good with with battles and fights, especially like combat. You know, like people combating each other not not necessarily like a gunfight mm-hmm. but like a lightsaber battle as we're going to find out in the future too she oh, yeah. just has a real skill for making you know what's happening physically right you, know, you can see the way something's moving and there's subtleties to it that a lot of people don't don't you wouldn't see in a lot of other people's artwork you know you just made me realize something that I completely missed before. I don't think there's a single caption box in this issue. Oh. I never you know you're right about that, but you know what? I think that's true because that's a very modern comics approach to the way comics are done, you know, today that they don't do, you know, the meanwhile box or, you know, 5,000 words to tell you what you're looking at. You know what I mean? You don't need... Well, for one thing, this is one storyline in one location. Right. So it's not three or four different storylines, so it doesn't have to cut back and forth. But you're, but usually there's at least something. There's nothing. Yeah, I just looked at the whole issue. There is not nothing. a single caption box. I think that speaks very highly of her art that no one felt the need to explain what, what you were looking happening. at in any part of that. That's great. That's awesome. Um, you know, another thing about her art too, that I remember um, as a kid, I think it was Michelle actually that pointed this out to me. My, my cousin, Michelle, she was a huge fan of Marvel star Wars all the way through, but particularly this era, I remember her really latching on to, the Cynthia Martin era, you know, her art mm-hmm. style. She loved the way that she drew Leia. I can remember um, Michelle wanting to get her hair done like Leia was illustrated in these Cynthia Martin issues. And ke- she kept changing her hairstyle to match what Leia was wearing in these. And it made me very conscious, uh, conscious rather, of how Cynthia Martin was illustrating hair, which seems like such a weird and unusual thing to notice but then you go back and you look through other issues and you notice that hair is often just one of those like cursory things that just gets done in comics, you know, and people don't really spend a lot of time on it or, or you know, really make it look one way or another. But, I mean, Cynthia Martin, she took time with people's hair. You could see like the, 
the feathering and the and the way that you know things were combed or styled, particularly Leia. You know, it, I mean, she it, illustrates it, like every braid and every follicle. You know, it's really dynamic. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, it took it took a it, the, a lot of the focus turned to things. I don't want to say feminine things, but details that 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 were kind of things that that girls notice that a lot. girl like, exactly exactly hair, no, hair outfits um, I, I don't think that that's a that's a, a rude or or you know uncalled for uh and, and comment, future, you know what i mean there's, and in the future there's going to be more sort of like eye candy zeltron guys yeah <laughs> walking around that are all like big you know big dumb you know and their wife beater sort of you know bimbo guy bimbo the the bimbo guy equivalent of of Donnie. Right. <clears throat> so yeah, it, it it and it 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 was totally different. It it was it, it still appealed to the thirteen year old boy. It was still stories that appealed to a thirteen year old boy, but there's a lot of um you know, politics and interpersonal relationships right. in this, you know, and uh and situational comedy, you know, that that has to do with you know, you know people's personalities rather than than um, you know a physical gag or something. You know, but, so you know, she doesn't skimp on the on the physical stuff either, though. Because I mean, you look at page eleven. This is one of the best pages in the book, in my opinion. It starts right at the very first panel. You've got Luke, you know, taking out rocks with his with his lightsaber. The Ewoks are are chucking these giant rocks at him. They use a catapult and launch this huge rock at him. So he just uses the force to push it aside and ends up inadvertently taking out Hirog that's hiding in the bushes. I think that's awesome. I mean, they, they use it as a little gag, but I, I just thought it was great. You know, I, I hope that this issue, you know, the plot of this issue was intended to be comedy because that's the oh, way yeah. I've always taken it. Oh, for sure. Do you think so for sure? Because that's I wonder about that. It's sort of like Star Wars on. It's sort of that's why it's called Small Wars. It's like Star Wars on a on a micro right level with Hux and Ewoks rather than you know the rebellion and and with Hirog instead of you know the the Emperor. Because I I've always, like I say I've always taken it that way. But then of course you know I, I haven't read this story in many 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 years. So as I was reading back through it and, and kind of chuckling over the the scenario and kind of the you know to be honest kind of the ridiculous ridiculousness of the whole thing, I got to second guessing myself and thinking, am I laughing at something that wasn't intended to be funny? You know, no, or no, was it, it was really intended to be a comedy issue. I wasn't sure how to take it. No, there's there's I mean there's flat out you know uh, wily e. coyote moments in this. Right, right. You know, where someone's holding a bomb in their hand, and, oh no, you know, and, and their faces. It's the beginning of the issue. Let's see if I can find it, because I failed to make a note of it. Oh, here it is. It's the top of page four. I mean, Lando is clearly standing there snickering over the entire situation. Yes. So that was my kind of clue that, okay, this the, the, we're intended to be doing the same thing that Lando's doing, kind of going, okay, we know that this is ridiculous, but, you know, still they are delegates we kind of have to treat it you know as seriously as we can kind of thing so it's kind of a wink wink nudge nudge but again you know it just 
I wanted to make sure I was taking it the way it was intended. Because if not, if this was intended to be a serious story, then it fails. Because it's pretty ridiculous, you know? I mean, why would the rest of the galaxy give two shits about a dust-up between the teddy bears and kitty cat people? You know, I mean, why would they care? You know? It's pretty silly. Yeah, there, I mean, there's, uh, there's a, I'm, I'm looking for the actual picture, but there's, a, there's an actual picture of Han Solo uh, face palming. Yes, on page twenty. It's <laughs> an actual, and, and I love Leia's like the expression of horror, you know, with both hands over her mouth too. And Leo, Lando's got a great look on his face too. It's just full of fun stuff like that. Look at page fourteen, last panel. That one, and then the panel that's right across from it, page 15, next to last panel, that picture of Tippett sharpening his battle spear is just friggin' awesome, dude. Yes, it is. That He looks very Wookiee-like. He does, and I'm trying like hell to place who I think that art looks like. The, it looks, the inking almost looks like Terry Austin. I'm it not looks like sure. something out of like Conan the Barbarian. Yeah, it's yeah. but it oh, it's just beautiful. I mean, so beautifully inked right there. It really looks great. But I like that picture of Luke too on page fourteen because he really does look like Mark Hamill, and she really took time with his hair and everything to to really make him look like uh, you know like Luke. I think that's great. Uh, let's see what else we got here. Oh, speaking of uh, of inking and uh, and Tom Palmer, I wanted to make sure to mention this. You know, um, this is another uh, you know turning point here. It's uh, this you know as we begin a new era with Cynthia Martin coming on. We also you know we we see the end of an era. We say uh, goodbye this issue to Tom Palmer. This is his last issue of uh, of Marvel Star Wars, and you know I'm I'm sad to see him go. You know I I, I can't help but wonder. You know whether these two would have continued to complement each other or not, because as you as you said, I think he is kind of reining her in a little bit. I'm not it, sure it works. It works here in this. But I, does, I like I don't know if it would in the future, though. You know, right? I but but knowing where it goes without him, I'm sort of glad it did go there without him. Yeah. Much as much as I appreciate, you know. All his work in keeping a consistent look to this comic for right. so long. Right. Let's it's see. time to go now. He came on at uh, at issue 8, which was the second part of the Aduba 3 story. And he worked on the latter three chapters of that. You know, it was a four-part story altogether. That, you know, it has to be you know mentioned again. That was the very first Star Wars Expanded Universe story. You know, so he's been there. From the very beginning, you know, he came back a number of years later. He did number forty-six, which was that uh, Cody Sunchild story, not the most you know <laughs> memorable issue. But then, you know, just a couple of issues after that, he came back, and from number forty-nine till now, he's inked nearly every single issue. So that's you know forty-nine to what is this ninety-four? Just about every single issue. So, you know, I mean, like I say, I, I'm sad to see him go because I really like Tom Palmer. But, yeah, I, I agree. I, I I think they work together beautifully this issue. 
But knowing where it goes and just knowing how gorgeous 95 and 96 are, I can't help but think that they would look very, very different from you know from how they look if if Palmer had done the inking. Although it would be it'd, it'd be kind of curious. It'd to be see. interesting to see, yeah. But uh, you know, as we've stated many, many, many times, you know, Palmer just he brought that consistency and, and uniformity to the look of Star Wars for so many years. Um. But again, you know, like you said, though, in a, in a way, maybe it is time to see him go because you know we we needed something different. It looks like it's time to try new things. Yeah, and and this art style, you know, that's just the the first step. You know, first we change up the artist with a dynamic new art style. You know, next we would we would change. You know, the stories would start to get more intense, and then we you know we get two, you know, really great and intense new threats you know, to our heroes. So, I mean, they were definitely trying, you know, to, to bring it back or, you know, make it, you know, dynamic and interesting again. So, but, um, Palmer, you know, he went straight into the, uh, the pages of the Avengers from here, uh, starting with, uh, issue 255. He stayed on that title all the way to the very last issue, number 402. Yikes. Just about every single issue of that between the you know those two numbers. Stern, uh, Roger Stern was the writer on the Avengers um, when he started at 255. And uh, Palmer started that issue. He, uh, you remember how he painted that cover to Star Wars, what is it, 81, I think? Jawas mm-hmm. of Doom, the one with Boba Fett and Han Solo on the cover of it. He, uh, his first issue on the Avengers, he painted the cover on that. And uh, it was this cover. It was a really cool one. It was a star field in the background. And it had the, the like these floaty heads of Captain America and Hercules, Star Fox, and um, um, the Black Knight. And they're like standing. They're like watching. They're looking in toward the center of the, of the page. And uh, it's got the new Captain Marvel, the, the one that was the black woman. And she looks like she's doing like an impersonation of that woman that died in the transporter beam from Star Trek. Oh, God. Picture. You know, it's this, you know, same sort of effect, but she's like got her hands up in a weird position. Like she's, you know, she looks like that same woman. Um, but anyway, I've been reading that stuff, that run for my first time. And, uh, and it is really, really, really good stuff. I mean, a lot of it's due to the writing, but uh, it's, it's, it's just weird, you know, to, to have read all of these issues of, of Star Wars and now jump over to uh, to Avengers. And it has almost exactly the same art style and everything. Same so, feel, yeah. yeah it, does. it has the same feel, but it's, uh, it's kind of helped me scratch that nostalgic itch for, you know, for more Marvel Star Wars, which, you know, of course is something that, you know, we're, we're never going to get, you know, more of this era. But it's, it's just kind of neat. I would recommend, you know, looking into that stuff if if anybody ever wants to, uh, you know, not only read some really great comics, but just you know follow Tom Palmer where he went and, and see where he uh, he progressed. That was pretty much all I had for specific notes on this, other than ads. Did you see any ads in here that uh, that caught your eye? Just a creepy one. Once again, on the inside of the back cover, there's like this weird. Not poorly, but kind of crudely drawn Spider-Man. Like, hey, kids, what do you want to see ads for? Oh, yeah. The Marvel Comics ad survey. He's got, like, 
he's bloated or something in that first panel right there. He's like uh, one ginormous leg. It's like yeah, yeah. He, Spider-Man it's, needs to see a doctor or something. It's, it's weirdly weirdly drawn. But uh, other than that, there was there was something else. I remember that cloak and daggers. There's an ad for a cloak and daggers. Yeah. When that came out. I think that's Rick Leonardi. I think. There's an ad for yeah. a rocket raccoon. Yeah, yeah, that was the one. That was a great. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you saw that rocket rocket raccoon one because I remember that you were a big fan of uh, what was it the mini series he had or something like yeah. that. Oh yeah, that's what this is. That's the mini. That's what this is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know he's uh, he's soon to be the next uh, Marvel Comics movie star because they're making uh, they're making um, what do you call it Guardians of the Galaxy into a live action movie. Rocket Raccoon is going to be on the big screen up there with like the Avengers and Captain America and all those. Excellent. Do you see that? I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. Honestly. Yeah, we can do that now without having him be, you know, look like Howard the Duck from his original movie or something <laughs> stupid like that, you know, look like a stuffed animal or something. <laughs> Let's see what else have we got here. I had a note on, I'm not, I can't understand my own note, what the hell this was about now. Understand. Oh, I know it. Okay. <laughs> it was the Power Pack and Spider Man uh, thing about uh, sexual abuse here, where yeah. you could send away for the special comic. I think that's the same one that got reprinted in the Watertown Daily Times, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it was hot. <laughs> <laughs> then in the uh the bullpen bulletins page uh there was mention here of uh the passing of don newton i don't remember newton doing a whole lot of work for uh for marvel i know he did uh did an avengers annual maybe he might have even done some individual issues i can't remember but i i i, mo- I really mostly associated him as a uh as a batman artist you know a dc artist but uh he was a hell of an artist when uh, went way before his time, and lastly, I noticed in the uh, this was actually it's mentioned here in the checklist, but I noticed that last issue it was mentioned in the hype box that the adaptations of both um, Dune and uh, Twenty Ten came out, and I know that Twenty Ten um, Palmer did the inks on that. I think he did the cover of the super special of that too, if I'm not mistaken. I can't remember if he worked on Dune or not. He may have, I forget. I don't know. I know Dune was, uh, Bill Sienkiewicz. Sienkiewicz, yeah. But it's really good. Yeah. And Web of Spider-Man number one began, just to give you an idea how, how far, how far back we're talking here. That makes me very old that that, uh, that was just coming out. But that's all I got on uh, Star Wars 94. Anything that's else? No, that's all I got. What do you think? You want to talk about some Indiana Jones? Yeah, I think it's about time to shoot. All right. Way forward into time. <laughs> Clouds of war gather ominously over Europe. The Great Depression grips the world. But one globe-trotting archaeologist thirst for adventure and discovery remains undaunted by his times. Stan Lee presents The Further Adventures of Indiana Jones
All right, so the further adventures of Indiana Jones number four, and uh, I apologize that uh, for a little bit there we seem to drop the uh, the indie segment, but uh, here we go. We're going to resume for a while. We'll see how this goes. Uh, this one, I'm just going to tip my hand right off the bat and say I think this was a hell of a lot better than issue three. So it's given me a little bit of, of confidence going back into this again. So we'll see how it goes this time around. Anyway, Further Adventures number four. This is the uh, April 1983 issue. Original cover price was 60 cents. This features one of my absolute favorite covers from this entire series. It's awesome. You've got uh, Indy, and he's cracking his whip. It's a, it's a pose very, very similar to the part in Raiders of the Lost Ark where he's cornered at the marketplace, and he just whips out his whip and starts taking out bad guys. He's doing yeah. something similar here while this uh, cute little redhead girl standing behind him cowering. He's focused on the bad guys that are in the foreground. You know, They're all armed and pointing weapons at him and stuff. He's trying to take them out. She's noticing that coming up behind them is a subway train because Indy's actually standing in the middle of subway tracks, you know, in the underground. And this subway train's coming up on them fast. Looks like it's about to mow them down. It's a really, really great cover. This it is looks by, very John Burney. It does. Yes, yes. It's uh, it's actually by um, Ron Friends and uh, Mike Gustavich who I really wish had inked friends on the interiors of the book as well as just on this cover. Because you're right, it does look very, very Burn and Austin to me. Um, which I, I, I can only think must have been intentional. They were trying to you know, keep that same look from, say, the, like the first two issues or something like that. Why in the world they didn't do that with the third issue, I don't know. Because I think that third issue has one of the weakest covers of the entire series. So the uh, plot and script on this are by David uh, Michelini, who, uh, you know, we came to love his uh, his work on the Marvel Star Wars run. And uh, incidentally, just if you're curious, this story comes out one month after Star Wars number 69. That was the second part of the storyline in uh, Marvel Star Wars that introduced Fen Shisa, you know, just to give you a little bit of uh, Star Wars context to where, you know, where all this... Uh, where all this lines up for uh, for David Michelini and Marvel Star Wars, that sort of thing. Um, so the pencils are by Ron Friends, inks by Danny Bolinati. Now, I really like Danny Bolinati. I, I really do. And you guys know that I love Ron Friends. But uh, it's got to be said, I don't think they work together at you know very well at all in this, especially this issue. You know, with all apologies to uh, to Bolinati, um, I think his inks just kind of muddy up Friends' style. You know, Friends has a very clean and lean penciling style, and Bolinati has a very um, just kind of thick style, and they, they just the two just don't complement each other at all. And then uh, Bob Sharon, um, the colorist takes almost like a coloring book approach to the assignment on this one. It just it's very bland and muddy and doesn't help the art at all. Um so anyway we got uh, Joe Rising is the letterer, Louise Jones editor, Jim Shooter editor in chief, and this story is entitled Gateway to Infinity. And right off the bat, 
the uh, question that we posed the last time around is answered. No, this is not a continuation of that um, awesome story in issue number three. And uh, enough said about that. So as we begin our tale, Indy is winging his way across the Atlantic Ocean on his way to merry old England on an assignment for the good old U.S. of A. When his trusty pilot, who's really a crafty Nazi spy, tricks Indy into the cargo hold, locks the door, and then bails out, leaving our intrepid hero in a plane that's not sinking, it's crashing! Now, it's got to be said, folks, that, uh, you know, David Michelini, he evidently, whether intentional or, or was psychically or whatever, this guy was a master of predicting shit that was going to wind up in future Lucas <laughs> in another movie. Yeah. <laughs> he did that constantly on Star Wars. We pointed it out a lot of times when he did that. You know, everything from the Tarkin, you know, the second Death Star, to the Lasbies, who were supposed to be, you know, who were pseudo Ewoks. I mean, he, he just did it constantly. He does it here again. This is a scene totally out of the, uh, not even, at this point, it wasn't even announced yet that there was going to be another indie movie, but this is a scene right out of the next one, Temple of Doom. So Indy, he rummages around in the cargo hold, and he comes across this big green blanket, and he uses that, and he just dives out of the plane, using this as his makeshift parachute. Now, thankfully, although you can't really tell it from the art, i got to be honest, Evidently, Indy couldn't have been too far above the water at this point because the blanket's not worth a crap. It's already been sabotaged by the pilot, and Indy just kind of plummets into the uh, the English Channel. But, you know, his luck holds out. He survives, and soon he's picked up by uh, an English Navy patrol boat. So soon, Indy is in London, and he's meeting with the folks that, uh, that sent for him. It's this guy, uh, Major Temple is his name. Which makes it sound like he has a massive cranium, I think. Anyway, this guy... There's a major temple on him, man. (laughs) He's the head of something called the Gateway Project. And he explains to Indy that uh, this strange crystal cylinder was recently discovered at Stonehenge. And uh, it's a crystal cylinder with strange carvings on it. Carvings in an unknown language. And they have reason to believe that uh, this is of vital importance to our world. So, of course, Uncle Adolf has just got to have this thing. So, Indy is then introduced to the maybe sort of love interest of this tale. Uh, Her name is Professor Karen Mays, and she's a top expert in... um, you know what? I wrote English languages here, and that's not right. I think it wasn't it. It was dead languages or something like that, right? What the hell do they say? Ancient languages. Like ancient, yeah, languages. ancient. Yeah, yeah, not English. Ancient languages. And she's a cute little redhead to boot. So of course, Indy starts putting the moves on her right away. While elsewhere, dark forces listen in on every word that has been spoken sus, uh, sus, yeah, thus far. I can't talk tonight. Yes, word. So Indy and Karen, uh, they go out to eat at this swanky French restaurant, and Indy just, uh, you know, he decides to opt for other dining options because he just narrowly escapes being poisoned. So after they get some uh, street vendor fish and chips, they get down to business cracking the code on that crystal. And, you know, of course, come on, they do. They break the code. 
And uh, pretty damn quick, too. It happens in one montage panel. So, according to the translation, the symbols were carved on the crystal by creatures that predate man on Earth. And these creatures fled into another realm, but they promised to return one day when the planets aligned again in a very specific, a specific pattern. And, of course, that pattern's coming up at midnight tonight. Pretty damn convenient, if you ask me. So, Indy and Karen are, uh, you know, they're understandably very excited about this discovery and looking forward to uh, whatever may happen. But again, dark forces have been listening through this whole affair and they decide that it's time to make their move. So, these thugs that are armed with automatic weapons, they come down out of the chimney of all places and they demand the crystal be handed over. So, Indy kind of pulls a fake-out maneuver, and he ends up taking out uh, one of the guys with his pistol before he just kicks over the table as a distraction. He grabs Karen, and he bails out the fourth-floor window to their apparent death. But Indy's pretty eagle-eyed, and he earlier spotted that there was an awning below the window, and uh, you know the two are saved by uh, hitting the awning and then bouncing to the street level. They get into a taxi, and they speed off, um, you know, do I have to even point out, once again, another scene right out of Temple of Doom? You know, remember the whole nightclub thing at the beginning? You know, Club Obi-Wan and all that? Again, you know, Mich- Michelini doing what he does best. So, uh, they don't get very far in the taxi before they find themselves uh, blocked by traffic. So, uh, Indy and Karen, they uh, get out of the taxi, they flee on foot, and they run down into the London Underground where they're really hoping that uh, they can lose their pursuers, but it doesn't work. And in a scene that's somewhat similar to the uh, really awesome cover on this issue, the pair find themselves caught in the headlights of an oncoming train. The Nazis see it too, and they just duck out of the way. And uh, after the train is passed, the Nazis search for any sign or any pieces of Indy and Karen, and they don't find them. The head bad guy, he's a clever one, and he spots what must have been their escape route. He sees this open sidewalk ventilation grid high above them, so everybody goes back up to street level. And Indy, at this point, he's just intent at getting the hell out of London. So he swipes a swanky uh, Rolls sedan, and he and Karen are off again trying to evade Hitler's men. But... Indy has made a critical misstep. He forgot that British people all drive on the wrong side of the damn road. So he's headed across this really narrow bridge against traffic, and he's attempting to dodge all these oncoming cars and stuff, and he loses control, and he smashes through a concrete rail. But before the duo can plunge into the black water far below, the car's bumper snags, and they dangle precariously over the side as the car just totters and creaks and finally falls, turning this spit-polished, fancy automobile into the world's most luxurious coffin. Next issue, What Lurks at Stonehenge, and will Indiana Jones live long enough to find out? And that's uh, number four. What did you think of this one? Big step up from number three. (laughs) I'm not as hard on the... I I don't think that necessarily he's the best inker for Ron Friends, but he sort of puts a 50s horror comic look to it in 
the way that like some that. the faces aren't that good, but there's just sort of a style to it that reminds me of like EC horror comics or old fifties and sixties, like you know the House of you know Terror or whatever you know, right? Crypt, Crypt of Terror or whatever. Um, and there's there's like little weird tributes, like when he steals the limousine. Is looks like something out of Mad Magazine with with the woman who's like the matronly socialite, you know. Right. Thank you, Meddings. You may return for us after the play. And then when he's climbing in, um, Meddings like the way he sticks his head underneath the the window thing to look through and gape at Indiana Jones is right out of like. Harvey right. Kurtzman, Mad <laughs> Magazine, you know, it's, it's, right. it's ridiculous, you know, it's, you know, um, so I was kind of enjoying that there was even, you know, I, I think what makes him not work with Ron Friends for me is his faces. He, Ron Friends' faces usually look very organic right. and realistic and they don't with this guy ink in it. They look yeah, they, very, uh, generic faces, and yeah. mannequin headed yeah. and, uh, but in some of the stuff, there's a very Bernie Wrightson almost look to it, especially when they're like in their hotel room or when they were, um, you know, um, there, there's the one shot of the head bad guy, you know, and they're listening in on his conversation and there's a guy hulking behind him and totally in the shadows and like half his face is in the shadows and his one gold tooth is is glinting right. and it <laughs> every looks like panel with him it's glinting too yeah exactly there's just light yeah he's he's like an early star trek 2009 yeah <laughs> lens flare <laughs> lens flare of his teeth yeah <laughs> but the, but there's the and and the frame above it it's very you know ec comics bernie wrightson looking yeah. and I like that because it's going to be some sort of interdimensional old god story so it's got a little horror element to it right yeah i i I really like this and and once again you're right michelini is like way ahead of the curve yes he is and he understands like you know okay this one's gonna have a british feel to it you know and there's some stuff that's like a little too like oh we'll get fish and chips and you know there's actually a cop that says right what's all this then (laughs) i love that but, uh, I see. I love one of you know one of the trademarks, in my opinion, of David Michelini's writing is the little comedic touches mm-hmm. that he would add to his stories. There are two fantastic ones in this. One is the use of repeated panels that each panel is just slightly different than the last. That gives you almost like a storyboard, uh, you know, like yes. a movie storyboard feel. It's where all right in the first panel, the cab has stopped. Indy and, uh, and Karen bail out of the cab. The very next one, you see the head bad guy just coming into the frame as the cabbie looks and goes, eh? And then you, you turn the page, and he opens, the cabbie opens the door right in front of the guy, and his head's just bouncing off that open door. <laughs> it's just doink right off the door. The next one's the guy's flat on his ass, and the cabbie's just going, uh, you know, sorry, governor. <laughs> it's it's freaking hysterical. He that says, I get uh, hurt a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. The other one that's awesome, 
when the uh, when the rolls goes off the bridge, and then the 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 fender snags to hold it. It's that picture of Indy sliding all the way forward yes, and smashing, smashing the, his face. <laughs> he just in teeny tiny little print. He's going ouch. It's like when you and I are watching a movie and somebody gets like kicked in the balls and we'll just go yes. ow. It's the yes. same type of thing. You know that hurt like hell, but he's just going ouch. <laughs> well, that's something they've been neglecting in the comics. Is he's he's been slippery in the comics, but. He doesn't get the shit beat out of him as much as he does in the movies. Right. In the movies, from beginning to end, he's just getting the shit beat out. He's getting run as fast as he can, and when they and when he stops running, someone's beating the hell out of him. Right. So, you know that that and 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 I mean, literally, like his face is just flattened against the front <laughs> of the windshield. He just you could tell he just slid forward and went. Right on the windshield. It's awesome. Through the windshield, probably. But yes, that definitely looks like that. Well, that's that's the old days when they had like plate glass. You know. Yeah, that's true. But I I I love the look of that though, because the car has stopped. He has not. You know. And and the sound effect is from. (laughs) Um. I dug the hell out of this. I really did. I thought I, I got to be honest. I think the art's a little weak I, as far as the the inking and the coloring. Just don't they they just don't work for me. I love Ron Friends. I can barely tell this is Ron Friends, and that's a damn shame because Ron Friends is one of the greats in my opinion. But uh, but I I do love this issue. Um, love that cover. I love that one of the bad guys looks like Popeye. He's like he, it's like that guy's going, <laughs> yeah, that's the one that's got me spinach. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> He's pointing right at Indy with his squinky eye. It's great. <laughs> um, I love after Indy dives out of the plane and everything. As he's falling, something happens to Indy that I think only ever happens once in the movies. He loses his hat. Yes, I love that. So I when, remember thinking that I'm like, uh oh, they made him lose his hat. You know yeah. what's what's going to be up with that? You know, but but he, in a very Spielbergy way, he gets his hat back. Yep the 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 hat is after Indy hits the water, and for a moment you're supposed to think, well, maybe he didn't make it. Maybe he died. You're like, yeah, right. You know, on the fourth page in, he's dead. But they're showing the the hat is perfectly sitting on top of the waves and just sitting there. And all of a sudden, you see Indy's hand come up, and then you see his head come up right underneath the hat as he plop, you know, like steadies it with his hat, you know, with his hand coming up out of the way. That's great. I just, that's a really good sequence because it is very Spielberg, Spielbergian. You're right. Yeah. Um, did you notice in the dinner scene at the very beginning of the dinner scene, um, Karen mentions Forrestal? Yes, Forrestal was the corpse that was impaled. Right, the beginning of uh, of Raiders, the uh, the competitor. I thought that was a nice little. Yes, also at the bottom of that page is uh, uh, is one of the most horrible news. He looks like some sort of like newscaster version of Indiana Jones, <laughs> You're right. like David Letterman version or something. Or it's just weird. It's See, yeah. there he looks terrible, but that picture. The next to last picture on the very next page, I think he looks really good right there, where he's kind of like has like a sinister look as he's turning yes. back at something. But then look at his, what would you call that suit coat, or what? What do they call that? You know the the, you know the the outer piece of clothing he's got there. Suit yeah, suit jacket. Yeah, suit jacket. 
it does that look wrong? It looks like it's buttoned up weird. Well, it looks like it, it looks like he's maybe getting up. It looks like maybe he was supposed to have his napkin still on there or something, but it sort uh, of has uh, a flap. It looks like a flap, like a chef's jacket or something. Right. I think it's, it's supposed to look like a two-piece. You know, like the like the ones that would button way across. You know, like uh, like what um, what's his name? George Reeves used to wear on the old Adventures of Superman show when he was Clark Kent. You know, where it would where it would button way across. But if that's what they're going for, it totally doesn't work. Because you're right, it looks like he's got like, I don't know, it's it's a weird like wrapper, almost like a cummerbund or something. It looks really strange. And those those last two those two panels, Indy looks like he was drawn by um. Oh, who is it who wrote Black Kiss? Who drew Black Kiss? Oh, uh, Chaken. Chaken. Yeah, he looks very Chaken. Yeah, you're this. right. We're going to see some Chaken uh, Indiana Jones very at, shortly. At some point, too. yeah. Yeah. Um, let's see. What else did I have here? Oh, uh, one of your favorite things. On the, the, very next, the top of the very next page after they got the fish and chips, she's trying to convince him to have his fries with vinegar. Or vinegar. have his chips with vinegar. Yeah. Get a kick out of that. Um, Hitler is said to still be sore about the whole uh, Lost Ark incident, which I thought was kind of funny. Which makes the scene in um, in uh, Last with, Crusade, in Last Crusade, all yeah. the all the funnier. <laughs> um, I think Indy looks especially good starting with. See, I wish these damn pages were numbered. But starting with the page where they hit the awning, and that guy, like you say, he's going, oh, what's all this then? I think from there on, Indy looks really good. Yes. I mean, he's drawn very, very well, especially there's the, the panel of surprise at the top of that next page, but then two panels later where he and Karen are face-to-face. He looks just like, not only does he look like Indiana Jones, he looks just like Harrison Ford. Which up till now, I, I, I'm hasn't really been happening in the comic. Yeah, it hasn't been, and I'm I'm suspecting that it was either you or Andy that pointed out when we did our first couple of uh, issues of this that maybe they had the rights to Indiana Jones, but not necessarily the likeness of Harrison Ford. I, I suspect you guys are probably right, but that one right there, <laughs> that's Harrison Ford. That's yeah. pretty neat. On the next page too, there's one where he's looking over his shoulder that looks like. Just like Harrison Ford, yeah, yeah, I like that. There's an old British guy shaking his umbrella at him too. I like the guy that goes, hmm, "Must be an American." I like that. <laughs> um, let's see what else we got here. Oh, speaking of Last Crusade, the part where uh, where the rolls pulls up, the rich couple get out. Indian uh, Karen duck in and take off. Kind of. Kind of somewhat similar to when uh, Indy and his father steal the car in uh, right. Last Crusade. I, I, mm-hmm. Sort of similar. Um, the only other thing I got on this one was uh, in the letters page, one of the letter writers, uh, Tony Berg, I thought he brought up some really great points in here. He basically had a list of you know, suggestions and things, comments. Two of them I thought were brilliant. Um, because I know that they come up later. One of them was a comment about Indy's whip. 
and uh, asking them to please don't exaggerate it, that it's only 10 feet long and ought to be kept that way. That one jumped out to me because that's one of my pet peeves with this series. Yeah, it's when he has a 30-foot whip to lower himself down from a building. I have no idea what issue number it is. I'm sure we'll get to it eventually. But there is a story where, where Indy lashes his whip to a bedpost that is on one side of a room, goes out the window on the other side of the room, and <laughs> hangs like down to the like ground. A hundred feet of whip behind him as he's like scaling down the side of a building. It's completely ridiculous. I don't know what in the world they were thinking of with that particular story. They were thinking we we're stupid. Right. You well, the other the couple morons. <laughs> the couple other things that he mentioned was uh, not to get too bogged down in uh, references to Raiders, which I agree with because at this point. They've been kind of cute and interesting up till now, but you know, enough's enough. You don't Ra- Raiders is just one of a million adventures, so right. you know. And I think that's actually I think that's very similar to what uh to what this guy so let me see if I can find that real quick. Because I think he does make something yeah, here it is. A man like Indy lives uh as much for the future as the past. That uh that one adventure is over and done with. Yeah. So yeah, he's basically saying the same thing. Come on, this, you know this guy has done more yeah. stuff than just the Lost Ark adventures. So, yeah, I think that's a great point. And lastly, he asks uh, Marvel to keep up the, the cliffhanger endings, which they do and they don't. I mean, they would do, to my recollection, they would do a lot of two-parters like this one. You know, I, I think... They were generally two-parters, I thought, but there were quite a so. few, you know, single-issue stories, too. I don't think there were anything much beyond two parts though i yeah off the top of my head i can't remember any um maybe maybe we'll you know be proven wrong i can't right. remember many multi-part i don't remember enough to say for sure but a book like this you would think that that would be one of the no-brainer things to make every issue some sort of cliffhanger you know to keep them coming back you know but they they didn't a lot of times you know it was it was one cliffhanger, then a resolution, then a, you know another cliffhanger. You know, so so two part well, type. Of John thing. Byrne nailed it in the first one. Chapters. You have chapters, and each yes. chapter ends either like either progressing the storyline or with a cliffhanger. You I, know, so. I think he more than anyone, and of course, maybe we'll see differently here. Because one thing I was pleasantly surprised to uh, to learn looking up today. Um, I had completely forgotten who the writers on this series were. I, all I could remember was the art because I, f- I often found the art to be substandard on this title. So I couldn't remember who the writers were. I was really pleasantly surprised to find that not only, you know, what was, uh, Michelini, the writer on this particular issue and on, you know, both chapters of this particular story, Michelini actually writes the bulk of this series so I'm hoping that this is going to read a lot better the second time around than it did when I was a kid. Yes. Maybe I can see past the shortcomings of the art to enjoy the story better than I did the first time around. And that was kind of the case with this particular issue because I'm really not down with the art in this one. Yet the story was fun. I had a blast reading it. You know, so the art wasn't bad enough to make me like to have it draw away from it. Right. You know what I mean. I fear it'll get there, though. That's what I worry about. It it's gets like, there in points. I remember. Yeah, because <laughs> I remember. I know. At one point, we get um, Steve Ditko, who I like. Don't get me wrong. I, I don't want you to get flooded with letters going. Oh, what the hell's your problem with Steve? I don't have a problem with Steve Ditko. However, you know, I, I like Steve Ditko on certain projects. Indiana Jones. This isn't one of them. 
And I can't remember who his inker is. It may be Bolinati. I can't remember, but I, the inker doesn't help at all. And I just remember the, the art on that being really, really hard to get through. It just didn't fit. You know what I mean? Ditko's style, just sadly, I'm sorry, just it, it's not, uh, yeah. you know, conducive to a great Indiana Jones adventure to, to me, you know? So I'll be interested, you know, when we get there. I don't even know if, if you know, uh, if Michelini will still be the writer by that point. But I know that he, uh, you know, looking at his credits today, he did the bulk of them. So that, that gives me a little more faith that, you know, they, they won't be as terrible as we had remembered them to be, hopefully. But that's pretty much all I got on this one. I just have one more note, and it's on the page where they're getting shot at in the subway. It has one frame with so many great... Um, bullet sounds, two of which sound like swears, crapow and badam. <laughs> but there's chick, spang, blam, and fiow also. So <laughs> I like that. But yeah, otherwise that's about all I all I got for this too. Excellent. All right, so that pretty much. Uh, we're pretty much out of shit to talk about this month. <laughs> For this, yeah. That doesn't yeah. happen very often, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, tune in next month. We'll be doing number 95, 96, and Indiana Jones number 5. I don't remember much about uh, Indiana Jones number 5, but I, I, will, I will go on record as saying that uh, 96 is uh, is my personal favorite single issue of, uh, of Marvel Star Wars. And... Uh, I can't wait to tell you why. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.libson.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. Libson is spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N. You can email Two True Freaks directly at twotruefreaks at gmail.com. Join our forum at forumforgeeks.com, where you can discuss all of the shows on our feed with us and your fellow listeners. You can find Two True Freaks on Facebook. Just search for Two True Freaks. And hey, you can friend me, Scott Gardner, on Facebook too. My name is spelled S-C-O-T-T-G-A-R-D-N-E-R. You can friend me on Facebook, too, if you can find me. Now available, Two True Freaks t-shirts. See our website for details. Two True Freaks is a very proud member of the Comics Podcast Network. You can check that out at www.comicspodcast.com, where you can hear our new episodes when we put them up. We are also members of the League of Comic Book Podcasts. For more information, visit comicbooknoise.com slash league. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? Thanks for listening, and join us every Monday for new episodes of Two True Freaks. But I was going into Toshi Station to pick up some power converters.